Drunken Master 2. Uh, Lao Galarum is co-directing with Jackie Chan on this film. No. He's not. No, no, no. Please clear, no. clear the record for us, please. He was the director full stop. There was no co-director. He was in charge. It was his show. Okay? But it was a Golden Harvest Jackie Chan movie. And then they started banging heads on the ideas of what they wanted the, the drunken boxing to look like. So eventually they left, split their ways. And that, that was to the end of the movie because we partly f filmed everything. We were in the just outside the furnace. We'd filmed the shot, some shots in the furnace. We'd filmed the shot with Vincent, the French guy, fighting with the chain and Jackie was a fan. We'd filmed that. You know, and we're just really going in for the last scenes of the end fight. And then, you know, my CV said, forget it. I'm out of here. And then, of course, because he brought me in, I left with him. This is an interview with Mark Houghton. Mark is a Western stuntman who worked in Hong Kong in the 90s alongside Sammo Hung, Philip Ko, Jackie Chan, and of course, Lao Galar. He talks about his Hungar training, his extensive Hong Kong filmography, and of course, what went down during the production of Drunken Master 2. You're gonna love it. Let's just start uh, at the beginning, talk about your, um, you can talk briefly about your upbringing and what movies you were inspired by as a child. I was born in the UK in 1962. And I didn't actually start martial arts until I was 14 years of age, you know. And at that time, the UK, it was typically judo or karate. Um, taekwondo was the most common martial arts to find. So, of course, um, my parents didn't really want me to learn martial arts because they, they, they thought they had this image of beating people up. And they didn't want me to go out fighting. So they really wasn't too happy when I, I said that I wanted to learn martial arts so they chose for me you can say the lesson of the evils which would be judo which is a gentle art and um, it's not considered aggressive and they thought if i did karate or something and i would go out and start fighting people so doing judo this is more of a defensive and it's called the gentle art so they thought that would be better suited for them for me to learn martial arts. So I actually started off learning a 14 years old judo. Uh, and I learned that in a sports club. And I actually got up to blue belt in the grading system. And then when I was about 16 years of age, then I changed over to karate. But I did that without letting my parents know. I just sneakily told them I was going to judo and went to learn karate instead. And at that time when I was 16, um, Bruce Lee movies were coming out and all this. Though they were um, categorized as 18 or older to go and see them, like 16, I used to go to the bars to drink because in the UK, it's 18 years of age to drink alcohol. So I could get away with drinking alcohol. So, of course, I can get away with going into a cinema and watching an adult movie. You know? So then I used to go and watch Bruce Lee movies. And then that really changed my perspective of martial arts. And, of course, like most people, after they saw a Bruce Lee movie, they wanted to learn Chinese martial art. Unfortunately, there was a limited amount of real 
good seafoods in the UK at that time. And those, I'd say the best out of them were probably Wing Chun guys in London. There was in Chinatown, and there was a few teaching Wing Chun. Um, that was too far for me to go because I lived in Coventry in the Midlands. So I ended up staying with karate for a while. And um, I, I met a Chinese guy, he's a Malaysian Chinese guy. And we become very good friends. He become like my older brother. I was 16 and he was 24. So he's eight years older than me. So we used to hang out together. He used to take me to bars and I'd go drinking with him and everything. And then I'd go to his house at the weekends. I'd stay at the weekends and I'd practice my, my karate in front of him. You know? And uh, this went on for about a year. And one day I was in his house and I was trying to do the splits, the box splits. And I was about this high off the floor. And I was really struggling with it. And he started laughing. And he he was half drunk. He'd been drinking a few few cans of beer. Uh And he just slid off the chair and just went right into full splits. And he said to me, he says, what are you trying to do? You're trying to do this. And I looked at him. And then he stood up and put his leg up in a 180-degree sidekick and held it with his hand there. And I kind of looked at him and I said, you're telling me I'd known you for one year and you didn't tell me you knew martial art or Chinese Kung Fu? He says, well, you never asked. And he says, anyway, he says, I prefer to be drinking beer than doing martial arts. So, um, you know, uh, then uh, he started to train me a little bit. Um, But he didn't really know traditional Chinese martial arts. Because he brought up in Malaysia, he was more of a street fighter mixed with Thai boxing. Because there was a lot of focus, Malaysia's close to Thailand. He's influenced by a lot of Thai boxing as well, you know. So he just started teaching me how to fight. And then I found this Kung Fu school in Birmingham. I used to travel there twice a week to learn what I thought was Kung Fu. And there was a Chinese guy teaching it. And he had a lot of students. He was commercialized. He's really, really big school. And I was there for about a month. I was so happy that I was eventually learning Chinese martial art. So I said to my friend, I said, hey, I found a Chinese martial art school. I'm learning real Chinese Kung Fu. I said, why don't you come and watch? So reluctantly, he came to Birmingham with me. And uh, he sat in the class and watched as the class went on. The Chinese guy that was the head of the school wasn't teaching. One of his students was. So while we were doing the class, he went and talked to the Chinese guy in Chinese. And uh, about 10 minutes later, he come back into class, walked through the middle of the class, class, grabbed me by the ear and pulled me out and said, we're leaving. You're wasting my drinking time. And the whole class stopped and everybody went quiet and just looked. And he dragged me out and he said, get changed. We're going, we're leaving. So I got changed and we left and I was unhappy. I said, well, what do you do that for? I said, I can't go back now. It's embarrassing. He goes, you don't want to go back. It's not real traditional Kung Fu they're teaching. Now they're teaching karate and kickboxing and passing off as Kung Fu. So he said, he said, you don't want to waste your time. We went to drink and then I ended up staying at his house. And the next day, 
I was really upset and, and, and sad. And he said, well, what were you so sad about? I goes, oh, I really want to learn Chinese martial arts. And he says, well, if you really want to learn that badly, he said, well, why don't you go to Hong Kong? He said, Hong Kong is a British colony. He says, you're British. He says, you can go and live there and you can learn Kung Fu there. And I said, well, I said, I don't know anybody there. He says, well, he says, why don't you join the police force? And I was like 17 and a half, coming to 18 now. So I actually wrote a letter to the Hong Kong police force asking if I could become a policeman in Hong Kong. And they sent me a reply to the letter saying that I would need to go to college um, and get some degree first because in Hong Kong, a British person cannot be on the beat. He has to be an officer. You cannot just be a normal police constable, you see? That would mean I'd have to go to college and study for two or three years to become a police officer in Hong Kong. And studying wasn't my strong point. Well, that's, a waste, that's a waste of drinking time. Yeah, and so I kind of pushed it out of the window and I said, well, what other options have I got? He goes, well, in that case, why don't you go to Malaysia? And he says, Malaysia, there's a big Chinese population in Malaysia. He says his family lives there. His father owns a hotel. I could live with his family and I could stay and work in the hotel. So I said, okay, why not? I said, can you arrange it? So we arranged it. And 18 and a half, nearly 19, I left for Malaysia. And they picked me up and I was so happy. My plan was I was going to stay here for four or five years, you know, learn martial arts, become an expert, and then go back to the UK and open up my own Kung Fu school. So we've gone over to Malaysia and they chopped my passport and I looked and they'd given me a month to stay in the country. And I was like, well, what's going on? And, and I said to the people at Paris, what's going on? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. He says, you stay a month here, you go across back to Singapore for one day, you come back, they give you another month. You go back to Singapore, you come back, they give you another month. You just keep doing that. No. And you can stay as long as you like. So, okay, so that's what I did. So I stayed with his family. Eventually, they took a real good liking to me and kind of, I was taken in as their adoptive son. And I stayed with them. And next to the, the hotel that they owned, that I lived in, there was a martial arts school. It was a white crane school. So that's the first school I went to join. And they were teaching, of course, white crane kung fu. And I stayed there for about a month. And one of the chefs in the hotel, now his name, believe it or not, was Lei Xiu Lung. Same as Bruce Lee. But he was a chef and he was a big, big fat guy chef. And he liked to watch martial art movies. So he said to me, he's going to watch the Midnight Show. Would I like to go and watch the movie with him? So I said, sure, I'll tag along. And he told me, told me to see um, Fong Hao, Mad Monkey by Lao Galong. So I watched this movie and I was like blown away. And I, I had so many questions like, who's this guy? No, what's his name? And he said, oh, this guy's... Kung Fu master, very famous in Hong Kong. His name is Lao Ka Leung. I said, okay, I want to learn monkey fist. Uh, does anybody teach monkey fist? He goes, well, he says, um, the film is about the monkey fist, but Lao Ka Leung is a famous master of Hong Gao, Hong Kun. And then he told me uh, the brief history of Hong Kun about Luka Choi, Fong Sai Yuk, uh, 
Hong uh, Heikun, you know, and Shaolin Temple and Shaolin burning down and all this. The style of martial art at that time uh, was Shaolin Kung Fu, but because the Shaolin Temple was burned down, they couldn't use the words Shaolin because they'd be executed. So out of the 10 Kung Fu Buddhas who escaped, they had a competition between them. And whoever won, he said, uh, they would name the art after him. So Hong Eikun was the strongest, so they named it Hong Kun. And then it was passed on from look at that, Hong Eikun, look at Choi, down to Wang Fei Hong and down to the present generations. You know? So I kind of heard this as kind of like a Robin Hood story. It's kind of like very uh, heroes, they're heroes, and, and, and they want to uh, fight against this government to overthrow the, the Qing and restore the Ming. You know? So I really thought, wow, this is a, an amazing story. I want to learn Hongana. Can I ask you a quick question about him? Um, was he part of the Hong Society in Malaysia? Yes, he was. Uh, but he was part of the Hong Mun, not the Honga. You know? So Hong Mun is a triad society, you know? Right. Can you can you describe the difference between those real quickly, just so that everybody understands? Well, I mean, they're, they're kind of interconnected. When the Shaolin burned down, there was the, the 10 Kung Fu brothers that left and they were outlaws and wanted by the government. So they had to do what they did to survive and they were, they were fighting against the government as well. And then there were the uh, five monks that left and the five monks first started the Hong Man Association. And again, that was for Fan Ching Fu Ming and it was a patriotic movement to overthrow the government. No. And the first, you could say, a, a triad society was actually based on helping the Han Chinese. And you could say, well, they say now, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And they were freedom fighters trying to bring back or restore their government and their dynasty, you know, the Ming dynasty. So, yeah, of course, at that time, they, some people considered them heroes. And some people, in today's terms, would call them terrorists, you know. Did the British colonial authority in Malaysia consider them a terrorist organization? Uh, no, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. Because the thing is, triads, they mainly keep to themselves and fight amongst themselves. So they wouldn't be going against the British government. With that time when Britain ruled Malaysia, they weren't trying to overthrow the British to get them out of Malaysia. Same as Hong Kong. They weren't trying to get these foreigners out of their country. They were just doing their own thing. As long as they could make money and survive, that was it. You know? So it had gone from an organization that was patriotic to helping their people to, you could say, selfish and helping themselves to survive. So, you know, I, I mean, that, that's how you could basically look at it. So anyway, I asked Lei Shulong if he knew any Hongan masters in Malaysia that he could introduce me to. So he said, yeah, he knows one. So he set up a meeting with me with this master. His name is Ho Kamwei. Uh, so it would be spelled H-O. So if you pronounce it in English pronunciation, it'd be Ho, Ho Kamwei. But in Cantonese, they don't pronounce it Ho, they pronounce it Ho. So he introduced me to this guy. And when I first saw him, I looked at him and he was so skinny and he was like 50 years of age. He didn't really have a physique to stand up and impress anybody. And he liked to drink. So when I met him, he was half drunk. But still, I was like, 
no, this guy teaches Hongar and I want to learn Hongar and be just like Lao Galang. Now, Lao Galang was my hero. I mean, Bruce Lee is the one that opened my eyes to uh, uh, Chinese martial arts. I respect him for doing that and I respect him for opening the eyes of the world to Chinese martial arts. You know, um, so he, you could say he was the forerunner, you know, but um, even though I really liked him and I liked to watch his movies and, and I respected what he did and that, he wasn't really my hero after I watched Lao Galang, you know, Lao Galang had become my hero, Lao Galang had taken his place, you know, and I wanted to do traditional martial arts. I really hoped that this guy would be good, this master would be good. And he would accept me as a student. He just laughed and said, uh, no, 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 no. He says, Chinese Kung Fu is for Chinese. He said, boxing is for Westerners. If you want to fight, you go back to your country and do boxing. And with that, I just stood up and went to walk away. And my friend pulled me and told me to sit down. And he said to me, so you're British, right? I said, yeah, because British can drink a lot. I goes, well, you know, I mean, we start drinking when we're young. He goes, well, have some beers with me then. So we got drunk. And then at the end of the night, I said goodbye and I left. The next day in the hotel, um, I came down. I was in the kitchen because I was uh, washing the dishes. I was in dish duty in the kitchen of the hotel. And the chef said to me, he says, oh, tonight um, we're going to the master's house. He wants to see you. And I said, why? I said, he doesn't want to teach me. He said, why do you want to see? He said, don't worry about it. He said, just come with me. So I went back to the guy's house that night. And he said he would demonstrate some Kung Fu for me. But he doesn't believe I'd be able to learn it. He says, I don't have the right mentality or the cultural upbringing or the strength to learn Chinese martial art. So he started to demonstrate Tiger and Crane Fist. You know, forks on me. As he was demonstrating, my expression went from this to this to that. And it finished, my mouth was so wide and I just frozen. And I was like, wow, this guy is a master. The speed he moved and the power he moved with, you know, was just unbelievable. And I said to him, I said, well, how much do you charge to teach? And he says, look, he says, I don't think you're going to last a week. So I'm not going to waste your money. I'm not going to waste my time. He says, I'm going to make it simple. If after seven days you come back, I'll teach you for free. But I don't think you're going to make seven days. And I said, okay, let's try it. So in most of Southern styles of Kung Fu, the most important is the horse dance, especially in Hong Kong. So, ngan ma ngan kyu. So, hard stance, hard bridge hand, you know. So, he got me into horse stance and I couldn't really stand. Every time I went down low, I'd fall over backwards. So, he propped me up against the wall to start with and got me down low and he took a cane. And every time I went to stand up, he would hit me on the leg, on the thigh. And he would hit me so hard that I would get welts on my leg. No. And he just kept hitting me as hard as he could and he just demolished my legs. Um, thinking that the more he hurt me, 
the faster I would leave and not come back. When we finished the, the stealth training, he had this bamboo log and the, the bamboo was about this thick. And he was about four feet in height and he'd hollowed it out and he'd put lead shot in it. So it made it heavy. And then he put a wire through it and he hung it up and you do random cue. So bridge training. So you'd hit that something, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And he'd stand behind me with a stick. And if I didn't hit it hard enough, he would hit me in the back. And again, I'd get welts on my back. So when I'd finished, my arms from here to here were swollen, bruised badly. And my hands were shaking. No, my legs were shaking. And he says, okay, most important in Kung Fu is strong stance, strong arms. He said, that's what you're going to do every day for a week. He says, if you can come back tomorrow, I'll see you tomorrow. And I left. And the next, He didn't think I'd come back, but I came back. And he did the same, and he did the same. And he just kept hitting me harder and harder and harder, trying to make me leave. On the eighth day, I came back. And I said, I'm still here. So you're going to teach me for free now. And he just smiled and said, okay. And then he started teaching me traditional Chinese martial arts, knowing that I had the determination and I wouldn't quit. No. And I stayed with him for about nearly three years. Unfortunately, at that time, this friend of mine, Lei Shulong, was doing some illegal activities. People were trying to take a cut of his business from him. He came to see me and he, he said to me, he says, Mark, what are you doing tonight? I says, nothing. He goes, your friends are here. Because I had a few friends from Singapore come over to see me as well. And they were the grandchildren of my adopted parents. So they called me uncle. So they were my nephew. So and in Singapore, they do national service. So two of them were in the police and three of them were in the army. So five of them came to visit me. And Lei Long said to me, he says, oh, he says, uh, your friends. I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, I'll tell you what. He says, uh, tonight I'll take you off for dinner. He picked us up at seven o'clock and took us to a restaurant. And we sat at a table and we picked up the menus. But before we could order, he turned around and said, okay, you guys wait here a minute. I'm going to the table over there to talk to some friends. Now, what he didn't tell us was he was having a gong so. Gong so was a gang meeting, a negotiation with the people who wanted to take part of his business. You know? And he was having us look like his muscle. Within five minutes, one of the guys picked up a chopstick and went and stuck it in his eye. So actually, he actually missed. And instead of going in the eye, it went here and then straight underneath and then come out the side. So he cut his eye from the middle to the side of his head. So we saw this, so we jumped up and we ran over. And of course we helped him to fight. So we started fighting. What we didn't know is there were 30 people there. The fight went from the restaurant because it was a, a roadside restaurant to the middle of the road. And there was that many people around there that I decided that I would get my back to a car. So that way no one could come behind me. And as I got my back to the car, what I didn't know was there was a guy hiding behind the car. And he was only a little guy, must have been just under five feet. He came running out 
and he stabbed me in the femoral artery. And I, I thought it was his fist. So I just back fisted him. And because he was so small, he went flying and I turned to hit someone else and he jumped up and he stabbed me in the back, which punctured my lung. So then um, you heard these police cars come. No. So a friend of mine said, shout, shout to me, run, run. So I started to run. As I took three or four steps, I had no, no stamina and I couldn't breathe. So I didn't know I'd been stabbed in the lungs. Eh? And then I looked down and I saw this blood shooting out in front of me. And it was shooting out about 15, 20 feet. And it was coming out of the femoral artery in my right side of my leg. You know, um, just, just, just above the groin. And then the next thing, I just collapsed. And my, my friend came running up, my nephew, uh, who was Singapore police. And he took his handkerchief, wrapped his handkerchief around his two fingers and stuck them in the hole to stop the blood. They got me to hospital. But in the meantime, as the police arrived to arrest everybody, a few of these gangsters jumped in a car and as they went to speed off, two police officers stood in front of the car and they rammed them and killed them. No, So this was a, a big case in Malaysia. Um, Malaysia has a death penalty. It's hanged by hanging. You know. So, of course, after my operation, I come to and the police come to see me. And after I left the hospital, I had to go to the police station. And they were like, do you know that the family you stay with are gangsters? And I was like, no. And they goes, so we think you're a gangster too. And I said, no, I'm here to learn martial arts. I said, uh, uh, my Chinese is not that good. I was learning some Mandarin and some Hainanese because my family are Hainanese speakers. No, I said, but I'm not fluent and I can't understand everything, probably 40%. No, So I, I don't know what they talk about half the time. They don't tell me too much things, so I got no clue. Um, so they said, well, this was a triad fight. So you were involved in it, you must be a member. So, and it was funny because in the police station, when they said that, they brought in a Malay prisoner because most of the majority of, of police in Malaysia are Malay. And they beat him up in front of me, trying to intimidate me. And then I just said to myself, look, I'm a British citizen. I was the one that's attacked. I've been stabbed, so if you have any further questions, I'd like the British Embassy to be present. And they says, well, we'll let you go back now, but we're going to wait to come back for further questioning. So when I went back to my adopted family's house, I decided that it'd be best if I left for a while. So I left and went back to the UK, and then I opened a martial arts school in the UK. I started teaching for the first time when I was about 22. And I started teaching in Coventry. And then I moved to Birmingham. And then Birmingham had a Chinatown. So I was just teaching outside Chinatown. I had the first full-time martial arts school, seven days a week above a snooker club, just by a New Street station, the main train station in Birmingham. And the majority of my students were either Chinese or Vietnamese with uh, a few local English people. So that's what I started to do. And then I was introduced to a local uh, Hong Kong guy 
who ran a restaurant and he wanted me to teach his children martial arts. So I taught his children martial arts. And I'd work in his restaurants on the weekends, kind of manager, doorman type of thing, because people would go out drinking, get drunk, come to the restaurant, eat and cause trouble. So he hired me to get rid of the people that made trouble. So one night after we finished working, he said to me, he says, uh, I know why you like Chinese Kung Fu. I goes, why? He goes, because of Bruce Lee. I said, yeah, I mean, he's the one that opened my eyes to Chinese martial arts, but my hero is Lao Galeng. And he goes, hey? He goes, what if I told you my friend in Hong Kong was his good friend? And I was like, really? He said, yeah, yeah. He goes, could you arrange for me to go to Hong Kong, meet him, take some photos with him, and then come back for it in my Kung Fu school? And he said, sure. So he made some phone calls and arranged for me to go to Hong Kong and he arranged for me to meet my hero, Lao Galang. And at that time, I was only thinking about meeting him, taking some photos and then coming back because I had a full-time school I was running in the UK and putting the photos up in the school. But it turned out that I never left. <laughs> you know, uh, I came and saw him. He was in Cinema City Film Company in Prince Edward. Yeah, he was in Prince Edward. And um, I met him and I told him that he was my hero. And that after watching his film, I went and learned Honga. And he asked me to demonstrate. So I demonstrated some Honga to him. And he said, wow, he said, for a Westerner, your horse stance is, is really good. I said, really deep, low stances. And then he got up and he walked out. And I just sat there like, I didn't know what to, what to do. I mean, it left me there in the room. And then he come back uh, like 30 seconds to a minute later, poked his head through the, the door and said, aren't you coming? And I says, what way? He goes, we're going for dinner. I, I'll take you for dinner. So he ended up taking me for dinner in a restaurant. And then while we're having dinner, he said to me, says, um, he was planning on making, uh, starting a new movie. Aces Go Places Part 5. And he said, if I was interested, he'd give me a part in his movie. And I was like, wow, is this a dream? And I said, well, you're my hero. Uh, uh, you're offering me a job in one of your movies? Of course I would do it, you know? So at that time, it was June 1988. And he wasn't going to start filming until November time. So he said, well, okay, he says, well, you know, if, when you're going back to UK, I said, in a few days, he says, well, come back in November, come and see me, and we'll start filming uh, end of November to December time. I said, okay, great. So I came back a little bit earlier. I came back in October, and I told my students in the UK to run the school for me, and I was going to come back to this one movie and then go back to the UK. So I went to the company. They arranged for the first shoot for me. And the first night, uh, it was a night shoot, the first time I was shooting. And it was at the Kwai Chung um, con shipping container port. And I had to be dressed as a fireman, pretend to be a fireman to steal this sword. And when I got onto set, he was already filming with um, Sam Wei and Maka. Um, Conan Lee was in it. Um, Billy Chong was in it from Indonesia, you know. So they were all there on set 
And I get on set and he's filming and he looks back and sees me and he stops filming and calls me over. And he introduces me to everybody. And he says, oh, this English boy does honga. And then he says, oh, do Tiger and Crane. Show them your honga. So I started to perform Tiger and Crane. And as I was performing, I saw something move out the corner of my eye. And I looked and it was him. He was performing with me. And the adrenaline pumping in me was amazing. I was like, wow, I've got to impress him. I've got to impress everybody. I've got to be fascinated. And then as I move, whatever I do, it's faster. No matter how fast I try to go, he's always one, two step ahead of me. I just couldn't keep up with him. No. And when we finished, he looked and he smiled and he says, uh, okay, go get changed. Uh, get ready for your shoot. And then he called everybody to start filming again. And he carried on filming. You know, and I was buzzing. Not only is he my hero, that I got a chance to perform with him next to him. And he lived up to my expectations of him being this great master. What he did in, uh, I saw on film, he could actually do in real life. You know? So that blew me away. And then we, we carried on filming. We're halfway through the movie and we stopped for lunch. And he said to me, he says, uh, Mark, you've been filming with me a, a month now. I said, yeah. He says, uh, after I finished this project, he says, what are you doing? Go back to the UK. I said, yeah, I've got a Kung Fu school to run. And he says, well, you ever thought of staying here, um, following me, learning uh, how to do movie action, and some martial arts, and... You know, when I got films, work for me. And I thought for, for a minute or two. And then one of the guys sitting next to me had a telephone. He had one of those Motorola, like a brick. The old, the, the really early phones, you know. So I said, can I borrow your phone? He said, yeah, okay. So I took his phone. I said, can I call UK? He said, yeah. So I called back to the UK to my students. And I said, hey, uh, my school, can you close it? I'm not coming back. And then that was it. I, I never left. So from 88 to now, I, I'm still in Hong Kong. You know? mm -hmm. So, and that's what really started. And that's what got me here and really started me in this industry. So you started working with Lao Galang. Did he have an action team at the time? This is, this is kind of post-Shaw era. Did he still have an action team with him? He didn't have the, his original Shaw Brother action team. No, but he, he did have a, a, an action team that he used. I mean, most of the people that used to be part of the stunt team from the show by the times were still with him, but they were in different posts now behind the camera, you know, and producers and things like this, you know. Um, so they were still around him, but they weren't doing the choreography or the stunts anymore. Um, so at that time, when we were shooting uh, Aces Go Places, he just finished, uh, not long ago, he'd, I wouldn't say just finished, but uh, he'd, he'd finished shooting North-South Shaolin with Jet Li. And that's where he met Hong Yan Yan. 
So he brought Hong Yan Yan from China to work for him in Hong Kong. So Hong Yan Yan became one of the Lao family stunt team. No. And then he'd have some other Hong Kong stuntmen that would come in and help when he needed them. And then he would just hire the rest of the stuntmen to be the bad guys in the film to get beat up and do the stunts. No. So he'd, he'd probably have three or four that was his main people. Mm. No. And then you just bring in other people to, to help on that, you know? Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you see, um, you know, Xiao Ho, for example, and he's working in yeah. Corey Yoon movies, Samuel Hung movies. Uh, there seems to be a lot of <clears throat> a lot of those. And even Lao Gawing worked extensively with Samo. Uh, yeah. So what was that environment like? among all these stuntmen? I mean, were they, were they very close associations or was there a sort of free play between teams? Well, I mean, each each person like my Sifu had his own stunt team, Lao Ga Ban, Jackie would have Singa Ban, Summer would have Hong Ga Ban, you know. They'd all have their own stunt team. But because the Hong Kong Stuntman Association is so small, they would interchange when needed. No, and if like my Sifu when he was in the Shaw Brothers heyday, he was really really busy, and he needed that big stunt team, his own stunt team to work with it. You know, but after he left Shaw Brothers, um, he wasn't filming as much as he was uh, when he was there. So he had projects. He did Tiger on the Beat, Tiger on the Beat Part Two. You know, uh, Aces Go Places, Drunken Master Two. He was the director. He was in charge of them. You know, also ATV. Uh, Bruce Lee's story, he played Bruce Lee's father. And I was in that, I fought a little bit with him and that. Um, and he was in control of that. Other projects he was just brought in as an actor and he didn't have real control over, you know? So he just had to control of his own part. And it was, it was the fact that if he had the movie, you guarantee you're involved in it. But if he hasn't, you've got to eat. So you've got to work. So you, you go across to another stunt team and join them uh, on whatever project they've got. You know? And that's what the stuntmen did. The stuntmen helped them, helped each other out. And so, I mean, Hong Kong Stunt Association is amazing. They're so close-knitted, even though they have their little groups within the stunt association. But, you know, I mean, they're always there to help each other. And if one person isn't working, then, hey, come and join us, you know. And that's how they really worked. So that's why you saw them interchange with different groups and everything. Did he ever talk about leaving Shaw Brothers, like Uh Not much. Um, he wasn't really happy with Shaw Brothers because they cheated him out of money. You know, I mean, most of this, the, the films did like 36 Chambers of Shaolin, you know? He didn't have a script for that. It was in his head. He came out with the whole concept of the film and he filmed most of it from his head. And and dialogue, they just make up on, on, on the day, just before, a few minutes before you, you speak, they just write the dialogue. Okay, say this, say this, say this. No. Um, so, you know, it all came from him. But he didn't, he wasn't, much of us, uh, he didn't do much schooling. You know, he was teaching martial arts in Macau at 13. And then at 16, he came to join his father, 
in the black and white Wong Fung movies as a stuntman. No, so I mean he was he was he was really intelligent. No, I mean and his mind, you know, once he saw something, he could remember it and, and he could do whatever he saw. You know, I mean it's the same if you talk about a piano. He never had any music lessons. But if he listened to a song, give him half an hour and he can play it on the piano. You know, he's just, just amazing like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, what happened was Shaw Brothers, they kept his wages down low. Every time he wanted to talk about changing his contract, they'd say, what, uh, you need some money, we'll give you an advance. And they just tricked him into taking these advances without giving him what he deserved, you know. Um, so when he left the Shaw Brothers, they did try to fight for the uh, the money that he never got. But, you know, unfortunately, he never got it. Mm -hmm. So even though he did all those great films for them and that, he, he wasn't appreciated. His value wasn't appreciated. He was tricked. No. So he did have, have some, a little bit of bad feeling towards Shaw Brothers, but he loved the films he produced and was so proud of what he did while he was there. Is that, a, is that also why Lao Gawing left Shaw and started working with Samo? Similar reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they first went to Taiwan. After shows, they went to Taiwan and did some films there. Yeah, you know? and, and Gawing really become very close to to Samo, and they did quite a lot of movies to, together. Even now, they're still very close to each other. You know, um, so you know that's what they, what they kind of built up over the years. And then after Taiwan, they came back to Hong Kong, and then. That's where Golden Harvest started coming up and all this, you know, taking over from Shores. So then they all become independent following whatever company they could. You know? What was uh what was Lao Gawing's relationship with Lao Galarung during these years? Of course, I mean Lao Gawing always looked up to his older brother. And he would do whatever he was told to by him. He had that much respect for him. No, um, and and my Sifu would always try to do whatever he could to help his younger brother uh, become successful. No, I mean uh, they were like just two peas in the pod. Um, you know, of course, they, when the one wasn't working, and, and the other one would go somewhere else to work. You know, um, but as soon as my Sifu had a, had a project, a film then Garwin would always come back. So before we get to Junkin' Master 2 and whatnot, uh, you also worked with some very notable directors and action designers, Philip Goldfay, Philip Coe. Yeah. Um, he's one of my favorites. And I was hoping you could talk to us about your work with him, his action direction style. And uh, yeah, what was that experience like? I mean, I really had great respect for Kofi. Actually, Kofi was probably the second director I worked for. First one would be a, a guy called Godfrey Ho. 
and he was doing these IFD movies where he'd take Taiwanese movies and splice them up with a two-week shoot with Westerners and, and make a complete new movie out of it. You know? So, like I say, I, I come back to Hong Kong in October and we didn't start actually shooting Aces Good Places till beginning to middle of December. You know? So a friend of mine said, to, well, I'll tell you what, there's this small company looking for people. I'll get you a job with them to get some experience. So they told me to IFD and I did a film called the uh, American Commando Naked Revenge. You know, that was my first film I ever did. Uh, and then I met some stunt guys on there that liked what I did and said, look, um, they want to introduce me to Philip Cole because he's shooting a film now. And the film, I think, was called uh, Sasa Altinsi or Angel Killers with Moon Lee. So I was like, great. So while I was waiting to do the original film I came to do, I got to experience some working on, on a film with IFD and then Cold Fate. So I had a, an end fight with Moon Lee in, in this film. You know? And Cold Fate was it's really, really good because he finds out what you can do, what makes you look good. And then he choreographs a fight around what you can do. Most action directors, they try to choreograph a fight around what, they can do. And the actor or the martial art actor, maybe he can't do the things they can do or move like they can do. So when they try to repeat what they do, they don't quite look natural. So I noticed that his background is Choi Le Fun, which is very similar to Hong Ga. You know, with the low stances and the wide arms, uh, long, long range arms with short range, mid range. So his style really suited me. And he would not just choreograph a fight for me. He would show me what he was trying to get, what he was trying to mold. And he goes, look, this is where I'm going. He says, does this feel good for you? Do you want to change it? Do you want to do something like different or that? And I'd go, well, this part is good. No, but after I brought this, can I go back from this side? When he punches this side, I go this side and then pull in and then go in. And he'd go, yeah, that's good. Okay, let's put that in. And he'd let me use my imagination and what I felt was natural to me. And he would make it work. And that's why when I first had the film and I had my first fight with Moon Lee, I was using Tiger, Tiger Claw. You know? And a lot of the movies I started working in at the beginning, I was using Tiger Claw. It was funny because... Um, after I went to New York to do a seminar, uh, some guys came to go to New York to do a seminar. When I got there, people were calling me the White Tiger. And I was like, what? And they goes, yeah, we see you in all these movies. You're playing Tiger Claw and you're the white man. We don't know your name. We didn't know what you were called. So we just called you the White Tiger, you know. And I kind of stuck. So, you know, and I did a documentary called I'm the White Tiger later on, you know. That's that's where that, that name came from. It actually came from New York, you know. Yeah, I, I love it when you, would, when you would play a detective with a handgun. You'd catch your guy, and then you you do the tiger claw to take him down. I thought that's, this is so yeah. cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Kofi was amazing in the fact that he allowed you to shine. And he allowed you to have an input in the choreography that he was doing. He not only did that, he actually taught you. He explained to you why he was doing this and the camera angle and what you wanted from that shot, you know? And then if you came up with something and it didn't work, you say, look, if I put the camera here, 
it's not going to work. So I've got to change the camera around here. But then we're going to change all the lighting as well. And we're going to waste time. So, you know, we have to adapt a little bit. So then, you know, he would explain to you why then you would see that and then you would adapt it. Yeah. And then you would look and he go, yep, that's perfect. Let's shoot it. You know? So I learned so much from him. Now, I did three or four movies with him and sometimes he just called me. When he had Westerners in his movies, he'd call me in just to uh, help him choreograph the Westerners, you know. So, I mean, that was really good. Did he ever talk about his background and how he like why he had that philosophy of action design because he he would do these sort of like lower budget martial art films but they were always really high quality so where did he where did he come up with this philosophy of action design did he ever talk about that well i mean let's say again he he started his career in Shaw brothers so he really started from that traditional martial art kind of style, you know, and that's why his Choi Lei foot was there, you know, and that's why he liked to show some tiger core, Hunga, Choi Lei foot, things like that, you know. But also then, um, when they left Shaw Brothers, he did a lot of work as well with Jackie in the early Jackie movies. As a stuntman, you know, um, he's the bad guy and all this. So he kind of picked up Jackie's pace and, and modern modern type of fighting, kickboxing type of fighting as well. And he learned the balance to put them together. You know, um, in today's filming, if you have too much traditional Chinese martial art, it's unbelievable. Who's going to fight like that nowadays? No one fights like that, you know. But if you have too much kickboxing and that, every, every fight becomes really the same. So he would splice it out. He'd have some traditional martial art with some boxing, kickboxing and street fighting. And he would mingle it all together uh, and he'd just feel it, you know. Uh, and most of the time we would go on set and 10, 15 minutes before shoot, we would start choreographing the fighting. Because then he says, you know, you get to feel the set, you get to appreciate it and you get to use it. They would go location hunting first, and they would take photos of every, everything where they were going to shoot. And they go, okay, this one, we want to do a big stunt. So they would build up a big stunt there. Once the stunt is in place, then they would build up the action, the fighting around that stunt, around what that place is. So you're breaking things, you're smashing into things. and that. A lot of times, movie companies, they would take their actors two months or three months before the shoot, and they'll take them to a sports hall, and they'll teach them the action. And they'll have them rehearse, 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 rehearse. And then when they shoot, then they'll put three or four cameras there, and then they will hope to do it in one take. First of all, if it doesn't really work, you can't ask the actor to change the choreography because it's already embedded in his head. And then if you're trying to do one take, by the time they get to the end of it, they're losing their strength and stamina, and they lose that power in the fight. What Hong Kong tends to do is, you know, once they decide on what major stunt they, they do, they choreograph the fight around that. And at that time, we did like 20, 20 moves to 30 moves a, a take. Now, and nowadays in Hong Kong, they're doing three or four moves a take because now the new generation are not martial artists. They can't fight. Um, so, I mean, it's different. But from short of the time and coming out of short of the time, all these Hong Kong actors had a real martial art background. 
this really seems like a, a structural difference between the Hong Kong film business and American film business, for example, where because our actors are not martial artists, usually, um, yeah, you you do previs, you do training, and then you choreograph everything for months and then you go and yeah, you shoot it out in one or two days. And that's just not how that works, right? And Hong Kong, it's not how it worked back then. I mean, I mean, what we did was, you know, choreograph it on the set. And okay, the first the first shot, maybe 10, 15 movements or 20 movements. And if it didn't work for some reason, we would change it, straight away change it. And because it's not embedded in the actor's mind, he can adapt. We found that was the, the easiest way to do things. You know? Did you find that your Hungar training helped you memorize a long sequence of movements? Or were there habits that you had to break in order to do these sequences on the fly? No, I mean, because any traditional martial art, whether it's Chinese martial art or karate or whatever, if they're doing tolo or forms, uh, kata, you know, if they emphasize a lot on these katas or, or tolo, you know, then their memory is good and they can remember the movement. But it's not just about remembering the movements, it's the timing that's the most critical thing. First of all, when you're talking about the film industry, uh, you're talking about the look of a main artist or actor, okay? Do they have that handsome look? Do the eyes sparkle and shine? Do, by people looking at them, are they memorized just by their image? No? Then, yes, this person's going to be the lead actor. No? Then you're talking about martial artists. Not whether they can do martial arts, but can they react to the action? So its reaction is more important than the action. Because... You're coming in as a bad guy. You've probably got to make a lead uh, artist look like he's a real fighter, a real martial artist, when he doesn't know martial arts. So it's your reaction that sells his action. So if your, what we say, fan ying, your reaction isn't good, no, then you're not going to be able to sell his action. And then on doing that is uh, beauty, is facial expression. So pain and all this, you know. Now, a lot we've had a lot of uh, world champions come from all over the world, come to Hong Kong, because they're thinking, because they're a world champion, they can get into the industry and become superstars, you know. And in reality, the, the movie star wouldn't last five minutes with them. They would wipe the floor with them, you know. But the thing is, they cannot sell the action and uh, beauting expression, facial expressions. They're so used to when they fight, not showing any emotion, not showing a, 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 a reaction, that when they get hit, they don't show pain. And they, they, they're too stiff because they're tensing up, you know? So when it comes to this movie action, they can't get the timing. Mm. They can't react. They don't have that facial expression. Yeah. So they can't sell the person they're fighting. And if you're going to be, if you're thinking of becoming a movie star, the first thing you got to do is come up from the bottom up. So you're going to be a, an extra, get hit one or two times, fall down. And if in them one or two times you fall down, your reaction is good, the expression is good. 
you can sell that that punch, that kick, then they give you bigger pass, bigger pass. And then as you become the main bad guy in that, then maybe you get a chance to become the lead actor. You know? But if you can't sell the person that's in front of you, then you're never going to make it in the industry. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, um, was that philosophy shared by these other action directors that you worked with, like Choi Boa, Rithi Choi, um, the Yoon clan you worked with, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Choi, Choi Boa is the guy that introduced me to Kofet. He was the guy I met on IFD. Uh, and Choi Boa is a, an amazing stuntman. Um, you saw that stunt where he comes off the bridge and hits the yeah. truck and then rolls up the truck onto the car, you know. I mean, he's done some real dangerous stunts. You know, yeah, the uh, the documentary Red Trousers has him featured prominently. So um, yeah, and he's I mean, he's he's yeah. hard. <laughs> he's a hard yeah. guy. <laughs> I mean, him and Chingala. I mean, they are amazing stuntmen. Um, they've done things that nobody else has done. Uh, you know, in Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of respect for them. You know, and now they both become directors. In their own right, you know, and making great movies. And, and Ching Galak is the head of the Hong Kong Stuntman Association now. Mom. So, and I spent a lot of time with Ching Galak in Drunken Master 2 because he, he followed my Sifu in a lot of things and, and helped out a lot of choreography and things. And, that. and um, whenever my Sifu wanted a stunt, and, and he, no one would, would had the, the guts to do it, he would just call. Hey, Gala, come here, jump off this. And he wouldn't even look. He'd just get to the edge and jump. And he wouldn't even wait for safety mats or anything like that. He'd just jump. And after you jump, he you know, goes, like that. And they go, yeah, like that. Okay. And then, okay, let's do the shit. You know. Did he have, was he in pain? Like, was, was there something wrong with her? Was he just, is he just tough? What, what is it with Chingalak? Like, how can he do that? I mean, the thing is, I mean, yeah, in Hong Kong, it's funny because if you're working as a stuntman and uh, you're asked to do a stunt and you refuse to do it, you are never going to work again. So there's no there's no way of saying no. Even with me, I wasn't trained as a stuntman. I was a martial artist that came into the industry. And then I learned reaction. I, I, I mean, I... My 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 Sifu spent time explaining to me about reactions and the facial expressions and how to sell uh, uh, the action of someone else, you know. And I was lucky, and I picked it up quite well, you know. Um, and there's times where I I've been asked to do a stunt and I've been shaking in my boots, but I couldn't say no. And it's just the fact that um, one time I jumped off a fourth floor building and it's an alleyway and the, the alleyway is like 12 feet apart, two buildings. And we're on the third floor. So on the second floor of this building, they built a metal uh, like veranda shelf or something coming off like this. Then on the, on the first floor of the other building, he built again. So when we jumped, we bounced off them like this to hit the floor, you know. And they give us padding and they put some metal on the padding. So when we hit metal on metal, we wouldn't break our ribs, you know. 
and you look down and it's high. And we don't have uh, airbags in Hong Kong. They have apple boxes with mattress on top. You know, so there's no really safety design. It's just you do it and you just hope that you survive. And that's the thing. You look and you find your mark where you want to jump from. And then you, you just go away and you just talk. And then you wait for the director to shout, roll camera action, and you just do it and hope that by the end of it, you're still here. <laughs> no. And I, I, I've had so many injuries. I, I broke my ankle uh, from one jump from a, a two-story building. They wouldn't let me go to the hospital. I had to finish the scene of running across the road, rolling over the car, pulling the guy out of the car, kicking him, then getting in the car and driving off. Then they let me go out. But they said they don't need to go to the hospital. They take me to a bone setter who told me it was only sprained and not broken. So I just took rest for two weeks and I went carry on working and my ankle was so swollen I had to bandage it real tight. 20 years later, I'm having a problem with my ankle and I found out my ankle was broken 20 years ago and I've been working in the film industry for 20 years on a broken ankle, jumping off things, running around and fighting, you know. And the diodotist says, how, how the hell did you do that? Your pain threshold must be really high, you know. Um, which movie so, was that, Mark? So that I can so that I can put a clip in there when you're talking about that part. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's a film called um, "Will of Iron." Okay. Um, in Chinese, it's called "Hakshut Black Snow." Um, but I, I, I've seen it for the first time just recently. I've never seen it before. But we're fighting this derelict house, and then there's like this little. Uh, alleyway and then when we fall up because when we actually did the, the, the stunt we went to a, a three story building and jumped off the top of the building but then when they edit it together you don't see that building that we jumped off you just see the four and it's so fast and I land on a, a metal spike and it goes through me you know um, so yeah, I mean it doesn't look uh, as good as uh, or, or as dangerous as what it right. was when we actually did it, no. I, I had a question about that movie, actually. At the beginning, uh, it says something about, uh, was it a Beijing co-production? Was there something with the mainland? What, uh, Will of Iron? I thought it was, yeah, because I, I looked at it yesterday and it looked like um, it wasn't- I'm not really sure, but the director was uh, David Chang. Oh, okay. Chang mm. Okay. Uh, um, but the one I brought my ankle wall off was a, um, a film called Dragon Fighter. Mm. I was fight, fighting with Sipo uh, Wei, and that's why I brought my ankle. But I, I've, after, I mean, I've been in the industry since '88, and I've done over 60 movies. Uh, I've smashed both my hips, my my left ankle, my right knee, no. I've had both hips replaced. I've had my right knee replaced. And now my left knee is just going. So this year sometime I've got to have my left knee replaced. No. Uh, welcome to Hong Kong Stuntman Association. It, it, it gives different meaning to uh, iron body training now, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, Mars, his body's been battered so much. I mean, Mars has stunned double Jackie so many times. 
even though Jackie's never had a stunt double, you know. I mean, whenever stunt, whenever there's a stunt going on with Jackie, he always has Mars do it first to see how dangerous it is if Mars survives it, you know, and then he does it. But Mars is always the first one to do it, you know. And the clock tower, Mars was the first one. And Mars did the whole complete stunt. Jackie, I think he did that half of it, you know. Um, and the Stuntman Association last year gave Mars an award for that stunt, you know. Um, but he's not recognised for it. Jack is recognised for it, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I, but that's a, all around the world. The stuntmen are not recognised for what they're doing. And all these Oscars, the stuntmen are left out, you know. And it's them that make the movies. I mean, it's them that give them, that it gives the action, the spice, and, and make people sit on the edge of their chairs when they're watching the, the films, you know. And it's about time the stuntmen were recognised for what they do. Because the way the, the danger they put themselves in and, and the toil they put their bodies through, you know, it's just unbelievable. Um, can we talk real quickly too about working with Moon Lee? You have multiple films with her. Um, yeah. And uh, what is it? What was it like for you working with uh, with her? Because you're, you know, you're you're tough. You're doing Hong Kun and and. Uh, was she just equally tough? Did you have to pull back? What was the what was the No well I mean, yeah. In American a lot of American films they kind of like to uh, tight tight clothing or, or cut offs or, or, or take off the shirt so you can see the muscle, you know. But then when you do that, when you're doing a stunt, you can't put padding inside, you know. So you can't heat as hard as you want. I mean, if you see a lot of Hong Kong movies, um between each shot, um, if they want to look, make it look beautiful, they use wide shot. You're seeing them fancy kicks or uh, aerial somersaults and things like this, or the, the st nice stunts, you know? Then if they want to show the power, it's half shot or real close shot, which shows the power in the, in the thing. And we really want power. And a lot of the times we really hit, but we put padding inside underneath clothes, you know? Um and and Muni was was like that. I mean, she would put pads under her arms and, and her legs, so when you block, she wouldn't get hurt that much. But even though the padding was there, she still felt the pain. But she just carried on. And when it comes to stunts, she did. I'd say ninety percent her own stunt, and that's why in one of Kofi's movies, uh, she jumped from the building when it exploded and she got all burnt. No. Because she did it herself. Um, she's amazing. I mean, her um, Yum Pam Pan is another one, you know, Wei Ying Hong, you know. Um, they, uh, and the Japanese girl Daito, Yao Gale. I mean, they did whatever the guys did. And the same as Michelle Yao. They would do their own stunts. They didn't care about getting hurt, they, they gave their all to it. It wasn't about whether they got hurt or not. It was about what they put into their performance. And they were willing to sacrifice being hurt to put that good performance in, you know. And a, a lot of the time, you've got to show that power. You, and when you show that power, you've got to have that reaction. As well as having that power in your facial expression and using that tensing your muscle, tension, your... when you're showing that power, just in that little bit, and then their reaction to it, you know, 
it just explodes on film. But we do make that contact. It's only the face uh, we will uh, make it uh, uh, the camera angle so you don't see that contact. But when I fought with, with Samo, he actually did a face kick to me, and you could see it actually hit. You know, and that that gave me. I was lying on the floor for ten minutes before I could stand up. You no, know? but um, I mean that's the thing. I mean, in the in the in the movies in the eighties uh, and nineties, you could see the power in the fights. No, you they sold it, you believed it, you no. Know? But now you're getting these new actors coming in that don't have the martial arts, they want to do blue screen, green screen, they want to cheat on everything, they don't want to get hurt, you know. Um and so there's there's no power in the fights anymore. Now, when you watch an American movie, what entrails you is the story, is the acting ability of the actors. You know, and you get so deep in that story and inside that character that they make you believe what's going on. Now, in in Hong Kong, the actors didn't have that acting ability that the people in the West had. So when they sold their movies, they sold it with action. And the more dangerous it was, the more powerful it was, the more exciting it became. And when you went to watch a Hong Kong movie, you came out and go, wow, man, see that guy's kick, see that stunt he did. Well, see the power he had when he hit him. You don't go, wow, that, the guy's acting was great. I really, really, really thought he was a great actor. You should have gotten Oscar. You never said that about a Hong Kong movie. There's a very small amount of Hong Kong actors that could go to America and do that performance as an actor. You know? Um, otherwise, they're just using uh, martial arts. They're using their body to act yeah um you see the same thing with early um american vaudeville with keaton and chaplin um in fact uh chaplin said something really interesting to groucho marx one time uh, chaplin said i'm jealous of you because you're able to act with your voice and this is coming from chaplin and of course keaton too had problems with talkies and so they were ones also who sort of used danger or comedy Keaton a lot more with danger and Harold Lloyd also and you can see why Hong Kong filmmakers were inspired by these guys because you're taking but like, Jackie, Jackie was inspired by yeah. yeah Jackie was inspired by Chaplin no so that's where a lot of his comedy came from no and his stunts yeah. so yeah um but yeah I mean uh I I looked at I looked at myself as a human prop uh, I, I was Always a bad guy. I was never going to become an, a, a, a movie star. You know, I was a human prop that they used to spice up certain parts of their, their films. You know, and I think in the Hong Kong history, everybody's a human prop. You know, that's what was good about their films. That's why people watched their films. They wanted that action. They wanted them crazy stunts. They wanted that hard knocks. No, which you couldn't get away with in the West. No, because here there's no unions. When when you be when you if you're a stunt director, right? Once it's your turn to choreograph, the director goes and sits down. No, you choreograph the fight. Then you tell the cameraman where to put the camera. You know, for that action. 
and then you go into the editing and you help edit that. So you have an idea in your head what it, what you want on screen. You put that on screen and then you go into editing and you edit it so it's, it becomes that image you have in your head. But in America, you have all these unions. The stunt choreographer choreographs a fight that is not on set. It has no connection with the set, no. And then he's not the one in control unless he's second unit director as well, no. Then you've got the director giving his idea of what he wants that fight scene to be. And then on top of that, then uh, you've got the, the editor who's now editing it in the way he sees it. Because we are, I mean, that's why when you get uh, Jackie going to the US to do an American movie or Jet Li going to do an American movie, the action is never quite the same as what they do in Hong Kong because they don't have that freedom. You know, yeah. And they can't put the stuntmen or the actors in the position they do in Hong Kong. Yeah. No. Uh, but now, uh, and, but now even in Hong Kong, it's, it's it's lost. It's gone. I mean, you haven't got the people you had before. The new generation are coming in. The dancers, the singers, they're not willing to get hurt. They're not willing to suffer for their performance in that way. They want stunt doubles. They want blue screen, green screen. You know. And it's about safety now. Mm. And that's why now the Hong Kong industry is kind of dying. Um, everybody's going to China. I mean, China are making the better movies now uh, on the point of production, their budgets, no? And those people in China, they have to go and study in acting school for three years in Beijing, and then they get out and then they, they go into the industry. If you haven't gone through Beijing acting school, you ain't getting a part in the movie. And it's a bit like America, you know, you, you go to an acting school and you get an acting coach and you get an agent and then you go into the business. In Hong Kong before, there was no such thing as acting coach or an agent. It's who you knew. It's not what you could do, it's who you knew. You know? And that's what got you in. Yeah. Um, but things are changing. Um, can we talk briefly about uh, your fight in Skinny Fatty with Samo? And yeah, it's it's uh, I think it's one of, I think it's it's a, it's an iconic fight. Um, what was the like? What was Samo's process for coming up with a fight scene? What was the inspiration for it? And how did you guys decide on the spot? Yeah, well, of course, in the whole movie. Um, Fatty Dragons, he was the fat Bruce Lee, and, and he done he done the movie before um, for the same type of topic, right, where he was a fat Bruce Lee. Um, and he wanted, he said to me, he says, uh, you know, one of Bruce's most famous fights between him and Chuck Norris. And because I had the blonde hair, he wanted to redo that film in the Coliseum, but with his own kind of twist on it, you know. Um, so he said to me, he says, Matt, he says, when we do this fight, can we hit for real? And I said, sure. I said, whatever you think, no. Because, I mean, what could I say, no? If I said, no, I'm not getting work again, no. I'm not being hired again. So like I say, you can't say no in a Hong Kong movie, no. So it's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So, I mean, some things we put some pads on underneath and that when, when we could, you know. And at the end, I mean, Samuel was also another one of these guys that 
he lets people shine. He's not one of those directors or actors who wants to be the best on set and no one can look better than him. He wants others to shine and then knock him down and then eventually he wins. Uh, we choreographed that fight and then it come to the end part where he kicks me in the stomach and I bend down and then he kicks me in the face and I flip up on my back. And then he jumps up and he claws me rah, and then he jumps on me just like Bruce Lee did. Uh, so he's got a part from uh, Way of the Dragon in the Coliseum and then a part from uh, Enter the Dragon. No. So he says to me, he says, Mark, he says, we've got a problem. I says, what? He says, uh, the shot when I kick you in the face, the camera's a low angle on the floor and it's on this side and it's going to see that my foot doesn't make contact with your face. He says, uh, can I make contact with your face? So I said, well, whatever's going to look good, let's do it. And he says, look, he says, we'll do a one-take shot, okay? I'll do it so so hard and so well that we just do one shot. There'll be no NG, no mistake. I said, okay, fine. <clears throat> then he goes away and he comes back with his shoe in his hand and a little bit of foam padding that he'd got. And he goes, look, Mark, Mark, I got some foam padding. I'm going to put it inside on the instep. So when I hit you, the padding's going to be there to pad it. So it's not going to hurt not gonna do anything. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. So we had the camera at low angle. So when his foot comes to kick, you can actually see the foot hit hit my stomach. Then I come down, and then he comes up again and kicks my face, and you can see the foot hit the face. And as he hits, I flip up onto my back, and then he jumps up and he claws me, and then he jumps up and stands on my chest, and ah, and then. Cut. And everybody claps. And uh, he walks back and he stops and looks back. And it's like, Mark, you okay? And I'm just lying forward with my hand up in the air just like this. I'm not saying a word. I can see stars, you know. <laughs> I can see Tweety birds around my head, you know. Um, it took me 10 minutes to just get my head clear to stand up. And uh, after I stood up, he, he come up to me, he goes, you okay? I goes, yeah, it's fine. I was a bit of a headache, dizzy as hell, but, you know, was it a good take? And he said it was beautiful. That's fine. No. Uh, he says, okay, you're finished. I says, okay, thank you. So I went and got changed, and I come back to say goodbye to everybody, and he said, oh, tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock, be here. I said, what? I guess my pass finished. He goes, I don't care. He says, you bet. get here in the morning, 7 o'clock, change your clothes, find a place to sleep, and stay there until we finish. Then you change your clothes and go home. He says, you're going to do that for a whole week. So for an extra seven days, he had me come in, change my clothes, and go to sleep. And the end of the shoot, I changed my clothes and go home. And he paid me for an extra seven days because of the shot I took to the face. No. And I really, really respect him for that. I mean, he really looked after his stuntmen. He really, really looked after his people. You know, uh, him, of course, my Sifu, him, Kofi, and Frankie Chan. Uh, 
to me, were the best directors, action directors. You know, because they really let the actors shine. Even the Westerns that come in, they made sure they did what they were good at. And they, they, they showed it, you know. And they showed your strengths and your powers. And, and they really show-lighted you, highlighted you, your skills, you know. And I really respect them all for that. You know? How long did uh, did it take to shoot that fight with Samo? Uh, that's your fight? Three to four days. Wow. And it's funny because after that, um, they had the, the midnight showing of it for uh, uh, limited people. No. And Maka called me up and he says, Mark, he says, uh, I've got some tickets for you. I've got seven tickets for you. Bring your friends to watch the movie. He goes, your fight was the best in the whole film. So I goes, okay. So I called a few friends, give them the tickets, we went to watch the film, and my fight comes up, and it's like two, three moves, and it's finished, it's over. They cut it, you know, and uh, my friends were like, you told me it's the best fight in the whole movie, it's the shortest fight in the whole movie. And I said, I don't understand what happened. And as we were leaving, I went to up to Mark and says, what happened to the fight? He goes, oh, he goes, I'm really sorry. He goes, um, they're in the editing room, editing away, and the film overrun, so they had to make some cuts, and the editor cut your part. You're the Westerner. He didn't think you were that important, so he cut your part. No. But then eventually then they they they, they let out the full edit of the film or of the fight, you know. Um and then it was, I didn't get to see it until about six or seven months afterwards that the film was released, I actually got to see the whole fight scene, you know. And, uh, and then I was calling up my friends and saying, look, this is what it's supposed to be like, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, uh, like I said, I mean, Westerners are the human props. Uh, you know, they're not considered one of the main uh, 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 artists, you know. So, I mean, that's the way it is. And, and again, I mean, if you're going in the States, I mean, it's, you know, certain stars that are there and then other people are getting cut short as well. If you're not American or if you're not uh, white or, or, or whatever, you're Asian or black, then you, you get your past getting caught, mm. cut because of that, you know. And it happens all over the world. If you're not that the local people out there, I mean, they're going to make the locals shine, you know. Yeah. And that's something that you understand. I mean, and, and like I say, I, I I never really planned to become an actor. And I don't still don't consider myself an actor. I'm an action actor, not an actor. I act with the action ability I have. Um, I mean, the, my dialogue and lines, I mean, I picked it up as I went along. But a lot of the times, they wanted you to exaggerate. You know, and, and so when you when you see our acting parts, it's kind of corny and, and, and not real, you know, because when you try to do something with emotion or they, they don't say, no, 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 I want you to exaggerate more. I want to, so they want you to make it look stupid. You know, and they uh, when they dub your Cantonese, when they dub your Cantonese, too, it's always this really awful, horrible Cantonese. They don't let you because you're speaking it. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, there's no f sound on set. 
you know, there's so much sound going around. And in, in, in Hong Kong, you've got traffic, you've got airplanes flying over and this and that, you know, to close off the set and get it with no sound on so you can you can actually film in sound is nearly impossible. So most of the films were filmed with no sound. So then they would go into studios and dub over it, you know. And unless it's for television, then they'll go into studio and film or whatever, you know. Um, but And then even when they're on the street, they'll have the microphones and that, but, you know, they'll still go back into uh, studio and redub the, the, the sound. But they'll actually use the stars' voices, you know. But for us, like I said, we were <clears throat> considered extras. We were considered human props, you know. So we wasn't in, well, it wasn't important enough, and they didn't want to pay the money for you to go back into a studio and use your voice, you know. So they just dubbed it. Can we talk about Frankie Chan? Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Outlaw Brothers. Really fun action movies. Um, lots of Westerners in these movies, too. And the Westerners really shine. And you you get to do some broadsword at the end of Outlaw Brothers. Uh, talk about what it's like. Uh, what What is Frankie's directing style when it comes to action? Well, I mean, Frankie, again, he wasn't in the, the short of the film, but he was in the early Golden Harvest films. He did the Prodigal Son. He played the Batman with all these rings on his finger. And, and uh, uh, Frankie was a Batman stylist. He actually did know Batman. You know? Um, again, he really had a love for traditional Chinese martial arts. And he'd surround himself with all Chinese martial artists, you know? And he liked to show that in all his films. Um, and again, I mean, he liked to use a, a lot of Westerns because he had a, a, a thought of, he just didn't want the Hong Kong market. He wanted the, the Western market. And to do that, he needed to use Westerners. And he needed to give them parts that was outstanding, you know? that made people go, wow, look at these guys. Westerners are doing the same fight scenes that the Hong Kong people are doing, you know? And he, again, he didn't, he didn't have any ego. You know, it wasn't about him. It was about his work. It was about what he was producing. And that was more important than him to have an outstanding film, you know? And, uh, that's, that's how he would think when, when he was coming to any project. And he used so many Westerners and, and gave them so so many opportunities to shine. You know? uh, again, he, he was just an amazing guy. I mean, I, I worked three movies with him. And each movie was, was a learning experience because his style of filming to my seafoods, to co-face, uh, to Samos were all different, you know? Um, so each one had something to offer and each one had something to learn from. Yeah. So people who are familiar with the um, the martial art history here might know that uh, Bakme was accused of betraying Shaolin, right? So yeah. how, how deep do those wounds run and did Frankie's Bakme style run up against the Hong Kong stylists? Nowadays, nobody cares about that. No, I mean, of course, Batman originally came from Shaolin Temple. Then he went to the Taoist Temple. He became a Taoist. 
and then he hated Shaolin so much he, he was he helped to burn down the Shaolin temple you know and he killed a lot of Shaolin people um in the old days there's kind of some kind of like grudge between the two styles but today's society now nobody cares I mean before it was like uh, Shaolin Lama Batmei were enemies you know um, but now nobody cares it's not about the history now it's about uh, preserving the styles and passing them on to the next generation. I mean, if, 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 I mean, it's just same like uh, uh, because of World War Two, do you hate the Germans? No. Or do you hate the Japanese? No. No. I mean, it's something in the history that happened, and we learn from history and we move on. And the world's become so small. That we learn to live together, you know, and the same in the martial art world. Yeah, I mean, now because we have laws and we have cameras everywhere, I mean, if you get into a fight now, people are getting it on Facebook and YouTube within two minutes of after the fight finished or live, you know. Can you really do anything now without getting caught? You can't. So, martial arts has lost its combat side of it. Because in society now, you know, we can't fight. You fight, you're going to prison. Even if you're getting mugged and robbed and you accidentally hurt or killed a person, you're going to prison for manslaughter or assault, you know. So it's a lose-lose situation. Mm. So now martial arts become a sport. It's become a performance art instead of a combat art, you know. And, and that's what Chinese martial arts moved on now. I mean, they're becoming a performance art and they're, they're, they're teaching to to keep the culture uh, 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 of the Chinese culture and the history of martial arts alive, you know? And when you have these combat sports like MMA and everything like this, they are sport combat martial arts, you know? Um, they have uh, controlled conditions uh, to fight in and rules. But just because you're a world champion in a ring, it doesn't mean you're going to survive on the street, you know? Um, martial arts, whether it's Karate, MMA, Kung Fu, right? Kung Fu, martial art, and fighting are two different things. Yeah. No? And fighting and violence is a completely separate thing. I'm going to definitely want to talk to you about that. I listened to some of your other interviews, um, and I've got some follow-up questions with that. Um, but there was, a, there was an interesting thing you said about Lao Galong, and this is where we get into Drunken Master 2, is that he wanted to promote his martial arts style, not by starting a school, because that was just not a very economical way for him to do it, but he was going to do it by using films. So is that what he also set out to do with Drunken Master 2? I asked him that question. I asked him a similar question. Uh, um, he told me stories about him when he was 13 years of age, that his father sent him to Macau to teach in a martial arts school there, and he was teaching adults. He wasn't teaching children. No. And at 16 years old, he stopped teaching. He came back to Hong Kong, and he started in, in the Black and White Film Ministry. But his father also had a martial arts school in Xiong Wan. So he would join in their um, demonstrations, the lion dance, uh, whatever. He would join in as part of their team. He would sometimes do some of the teaching as well. No, 
Um, but then again, when he come to the movies, he, he got so busy that he had no time for teaching. And then he built his, his name, his reputation as an action director, as an actor, as a, as a director, as an action movie star, you know. And I said to him one day, I said, see, boy, I said, you know, I said, um, to me, maybe I'm biased, uh, but to me, you are the leading Honga master in the world. You are the best. No one can, can match you. And he turned, he goes, Mark, first of all, I would never say that about myself. I would never say I'm better than anybody else. He says, so please, he says, uh, I, I'm happy that you think like that. But, you know, he says, uh, we do not say we're better than anybody else, but we do not say we are less of a martial artist than anybody else. We all have our expectations of what we want to do. And my expectations and goals might be different from someone else, but they might reach their expectations and their goals. So they succeeded in what they set out for them. My expectations, my goals might be a little bit higher or harder, but have I reached them? Have I reached my expectations and goals? He says, no. He says, all the things I've done, after I've finished them, my goals and expectations went higher. And I've never reached my limit. So I'm not, I'm not the best of my ability. I, I'm not there. Now, I'm always evolving. I'm always changing. You know? So I can never say I'm the best. You know? um, and I said, well, okay. I said, but you know, all these masters around the world, they've got all these schools and all these people. He says, why don't you open up schools? Thousands of people will come to learn from you. And he says, well, he says, if I open up a school, how many people can I teach physically? 50, 100? You know? Any more than that, how can you see them all? He said, even more than 50. This guy, you're at the front of the class, you can't see the guy at the back of the class. Who's benefiting from your, your instruction? And those that are not benefiting or you don't see them, they leave. You know? Um... And then when they asked why they left, oh, because I was put at the back and I was ignored. He didn't see me, you know, and my reputation is starting to go down, you know. And then if I did open a school, how much am I charging? He says, do you know how much I make with one movie? And I said, not really. He goes, well, I make, I say, after he left Shaw Brothers, it, it was like a few million Hong Kong dollars per movie. No. He says, so if I open up a Kung Fu school and I teach to the status I have in the film industry, how much am I going to charge? If I, if I charge the same status I have in the film industry, nobody's going to be afford to pay it. Then if I charge the same amount as the local instructors down the street, I have no face. So he said, what I do then is I teach in my movies. I teach uh, Chinese culture. I teach Chinese martial virtue. You know, and then I teach people how to get strong basics in the martial art, Gebung Kung, no? And then how to develop their Kung Fu throughout the movie. So in one movie, how many million people can I influence throughout the world? 
So can't I do more making a movie than opening a Kung Fu school? Mm. And I smiled and said, yes, that's right. He goes, Mark, you can open up this uh, Kung Fu school and teach for me. You, you can promote my style of Kung Fu through you. You know, so I said, okay, that's what I'll do. You know, I mean, I, I've I've got his last script. The last script he ever wrote is uh, called Lok Choi. So it's about the history of Shaolin, Shaolin burning, the 10 Kung Fu Buddhas leaving Shaolin and developing Honga. Um, but in the Honga system, we always say Lok Choi is the founder of the style, not Hong He Kun. Even though the style is named after Hong He Kun, no. Um, <clears throat> the problems with Chinese martial art history is not; it's nothing's been written down. It's all passed from word of mouth. So each master has his own uh, uh, variation of what he thinks the history uh, is like. And Lao Galiang thought that Hong He Kun was killed by Batman. See. And it was Luk Choi that took the martial arts and taught it to the generations down. So that's why we call Luk Choi the founder of Honga. Not even though it was it was named and developed after Hong Kong. No. But other people with their ego saying, no, Hong Kong didn't wasn't killed by Batman. He survived and he, he taught his own branch of Kung Fu, you know, and passed on to his son and things like this. You know? So each each person has their own. Idea of the history of the martial art. Who's right? Who's wrong? You can't. You can't say. No, it's funny because my Siva one day we were out having lunch together, and he was talking about uh, Wing Chun. And he said to me, he "says Ma, he said, do you know how Wing Chun was developed?" And I goes, "Well, not really." He goes, "Let me tell you." He says, "One day." Moi, the, the, the priestess, the nun, she wanted to teach Wing Chun as a uh, martial art. But she didn't know what style of martial art to teach her, what was suitable for her body. So one day, because you know Wing Chun was a goat herder. So she took the goats down the mountain and Moi followed her. And she stopped at um, a lake and the, the, the ghosts were dirty. So she decided to give them a wash. So the nun sat at the side watching. And he says, when Wing Chun grabbed the first goat, pulled him in the water, he didn't want to stay in the water. So she got in between her legs and squeezed him with her legs. Yi Chi Kimma. And then as she's washing him, the ghost got horns. He doesn't want to be there. So he's trying to hit it with the horns. So she's washing him to dance out, bongs out, to stop that horn from hitting her. And the nun saw this and she goes, wait a minute. She's got really strong legs. I'm holding the ghost in there, stopping the horn from hitting her with the dance out. And then the other comes, she used bongs out. He says, this was the beginning of Wing Chun. And she took this and she used this for what Wing Chun's body was uh, uh, capable of doing naturally. And she developed Wing Chun. And I was like, wow, 
I didn't know that. And he started drinking his tea. And he was looking out through the window of the restaurant. After a few minutes, he turned back to me and goes, um, so uh, the story I just told you, do you think it's true? And I said, well, if it comes from you, it's got to be, right? He goes, no, I just made it up. It'd make a great movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> he says, but the thing is, martial arts were developed by people and their minds. A martial arts system has to come from something that the body is natural to do. That's where all the foundation comes from. If you're trying to force your body to do something that it can't do, it will never accept it. So he said, in a movie, if I made a movie about that, it would be pretty cool. But whether it's true or not, even he doesn't know. You know? So I want to come back to this later because this is a this is a really interesting parallel with the Hong Society initiation rite which people have interpreted as a um, is a passage of the soul through the underworld, through death. And I wonder if the Hong Hei-gun, if he died, if that if this Hong Society initiation rite originates with him dying, and it's the passage of the soul through death. I don't know if you're at all familiar with that. Uh, well, like I said, I mean, now... Um... Their, 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 their plan was to restore the Ming Dynasty, get rid of the Qing. No. Um, but today's, uh, I mean, in America, you have the Hongman Association. Um, and in Singapore and Malaysia, they have a Hongman Association. And um, they, in Malaysia, they, they, they film them coming in, they have dinner banquets, and they film them coming in and how they hold the hand, and they have to say a poem as they come in, and that, and then they're told what, what rank they are, and then they come into the dinner party. You know? <clears throat> but in Hong Kong, that's against the law. Um, in a lot of other Asian countries, Taiwan, and that's against the law. So if you openly do that, it's seven-year uh, prison sentence. No, so now not many people do that anymore. Um, in America, I think because they put the Hongman Association is to do with Chinatown Association. No, um, so I kind of I, I think they've got a, a, a way around it when it's not being outlawed as a, a triad association, kind of kind of separated it from that, you know, um, but still it is. Basically, a triad association, you know, Hong Man. Now, all, they have all, all different triad groups, you know, but they all come under Hong Man. Did, uh, did Lagalang try and distance himself from the Hong associations, uh, the, the organized crime aspect? Obviously, he didn't. Well, I mean, the thing is, of course, I mean, he didn't do anything illegal. No, I mean, he was a, a prominent person in the film industry, director, action director, movie star, you know. So you can't go out and do anything illegal because you're going to be the first one to be arrested. Um, however, um, it's just like America. I mean, the movie industry in Hong Kong was heavily influenced by these type of people and groups. 
And I was like, America in the beginning, they were influenced by, you know, the mafia or a group similar to that. They the, were there to take their cut of the pie and to protect the industry or whatever, you know. So, I mean, of course, um, there was this aspect of the film industry in Hong Kong connected to this. Um, like I said before, it's not what you knew, it's who you knew, you know. And in the early 90s, a lot of movies were made to launder money. So a lot of the, the, the money was cleaned, you know. Uh, now you can't do that, you know. Um, and that's why the industry now is it, kind of like, it's never going to be like it was. I mean, in, in the 80s and 90s, they're making 100 movies a year. And now you're lucky if you make uh, two or three movies a year in Hong Kong. No. No, I mean, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I wouldn't say involved, but he was connected with the people who was involved in the film industry. No. And you had to mingle with them. You had to work with them. And, and, you know, you just did what you had to do to make your films and whatever, you know. Um, and that's, that's how it worked out. I mean, every, every film that was made in Hong Kong has an influence from that type of group of people. You know, um, there's no getting out of it. You know, uh, and that's how it was. Um, now it's changing. Um, now you have a lot of, of uh, students uh, Hong Kong people that go to America to study film and study, study this to that and they come back and then they come into the Hong Kong film industry you know um, Daiso you know who Daiso is right yeah but he belonged to um, I think it was Sun Yeon and there was uh, a company filming in Saigon, where he lived. So he went to uh, take protection money for them filming in this area. And one of the producers had, had just come back from America, studying film in America. He's a Hong Kong person, a young kid, who has no idea about the backdrop behind Hong Kong industry. And when Daiso approached him to ask for money, he called the police and had him arrested. You know. So now the younger generation are going overseas to study film because there was no place to study film in Hong Kong. You know. And now they're coming back with that mentality. And then when people go to them and, and, and approach them on this type of thing, they call the police. So now the society has kind of changed slightly. And now there's a big gap uh, this uh, stop mm. a lot of this from happening, no. But it's also killed the film industry. Um, this, I mean, and now you have the ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption in Hong Kong. So now, when you're making a movie, they want to know where the money comes from. You have to show them all the proof before you didn't need to do that. No, you just took the money, made the film, and then when you got the profits back from the sales, then you. You know, declared it to the tax or whatever the government. You know. Um. So I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, 
everybody was involved in it to a certain degree. Um, but it was a business. Hmm. You know, they weren't going out chopping people or, or selling drugs or, or taking protection from this and that, you know. Uh, but you had to know people, you had to be connected, you had to be involved to a certain extent for people to support your films, uh, do this, do that, you know. I mean, there's a few Hong Kong actors that were held at gunpoint and made to do a film that they didn't want to do, you know. I'm not mentioning names or, or, or groups or whatever, but it, it did happen, you know. Uh, and, and there's one company, again, I'm not going to mention the company, but a lot of their films were based on drug money being laundered, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, that's how it was in, in the beginning. It, you know, it, and now because the film industry is dead in Hong Kong, and it's never going to come back to that. It's hard to get investors now. I mean, before people would invest in one movie because they they, they want to wash that money for that, that. So they use that money for that one movie. They give that finance for that budget. You make the movie, you sell it, give them back their cut, and you've got the profits, you know. Um, unfortunately, now it doesn't work like that. And now with the industries, it's very hard to get investors. I mean, like I said, I've got my, my Sifu's last script he ever read. I've got a few scripts I, I've written. And my daughter's doing well now. No. Um, and I, I've got a few scripts with her for the lead actress. And I'm trying to get investment for it. But now people don't invest in one movie. They want to invest in a package, 10 movies, 20 movies, where it's a group of investors investing, not one person. So now, not just in, uh, talking about your movie, they've got to get the budget for 10 movies or, or 20 movies. And that way, if two or three movies don't make it, they still recruit their money on the other ones. You know, before before it wasn't about, they didn't care whether you made profits from the movie, as long as you gave them back their initial investment clean. No. Almost need to uh, get a bunch of us together who have these uh, martial art film scripts, get 10 of us together and then approach yeah. them with that. And then we have, then they can have their catalog. Well, I mean, I, I, one of my students actually works at uh, Skywalker Ranch. Um, he's a sound technician. He, he just got a, 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 his name up for, for uh, an Emmy, but he, he lost it to Dune. No, he did. He did the sound for um, West Side Story and uh, uh, BFF and, and How to Train Your Dragon and all this. So you know, um, so now uh, he's kind of like me and him are writing some scripts together now, and he's trying to get his connections from Skywalker Ranch to get investors and all this and that and. There's a, um, a group of investors that want to invest in 10 movies and one of the movies I want to do, they put that in as a package. Um, unfortunately, one of the guys that were going to invest had his money in Russia. When they went to war with Ukraine, his money was blocked. So he dropped out and now they're trying to find a replacement. Um, and, you know, well, you know the pain that he's trying to get investment now. You know, it's not easy, you know. Um, um, this waiting game. 
So um, let's go. Let's go back to um, the big one, Drunken Master Two. Uh, Lao Galarang is co-directing with Jackie Chan on this film. No, he's no, not. No, no, please clear no. clear the record for us, please. He was the director, full stop. There was no co-director. He was in charge. It was his show. Okay, but it was a Golden Harvest Jackie Chan movie. Yeah, somewhere down the line, Jackie decided he didn't like his style of martial arts. You see, <clears throat> my master, he said that, look, you can't fight drunk. Have you ever seen a drunk man in the street fight? They fall over. No, they get beat up. No, you can't fight drunk. So his idea was to pretend to be drunk while you're doing the drunken form. And then as soon as you start to make contact with someone, you sober up, you have them hard hitting techniques. And as soon as you hit and you come back, then you start being drunk again. Where Jackie wanted to be drunk throughout the whole fight. No. So there was some words spoken, different ideas going on, you know. My my super was the, the director. The action director was Lao Ga Young, who's the nephew, is the son of my Sifu's eldest sister. All right. Uh, but in Mandarin they called Gawing Lao Ga Young. So a lot of people mix them up and think they say Lao Ga Young, they think it's Gawing. But no, Lao Ga Young is the nephew. And he was the action director. And then I was hired as the assistant action director. Now, it's the first time a Westerner was ever hired as an assistant action director for a Hong Kong movie. And they did that because of my knowledge in Hong Kong. And it's about Wong Fei Hong. So one time, I, I didn't even know I was hired for the part. I was in, in Tim Sai Joy and Ken Lo saw me. And he come across and goes, Mark, congratulations. And I goes, what? He goes, you're assistant uh, action director for Junker Master 2. And so, I don't know. He goes, yeah, you better call your sequel. And I called my sequel and he said, yeah, you got a part in the movie as, as, a, as the, the British officer. And then you're also helping to uh, coordinate action. So that was that, you know. Um, unfortunately, one time, Guy Young was uh, choreographing Jackie's part. And my seafood didn't like what he was doing. So he said, ah, let me do it. So he started choreographing the part. And then he asked Jackie to follow him. And he was so fast, Jackie couldn't follow him. And then uh, people in the background started sniggering. So Jackie got pissed off with that. And then they started banging heads on the ideas of what they wanted the, the drunken boxing to look like. So eventually they left split their ways and that, that was to the end of the movie because we partly f filmed everything we were in the just outside the furnace we'd filmed the shot some shots in the furnace we'd filmed the shot with vincent the french guy uh fighting with the chain and jackie was a fan we'd filmed that you know uh and we're just really going in for the last the last scenes of the end and end fight and then you know, my sister said, forget it, I I'm out of here. And then, of course, because he brought me in, I left with him. 
so that's at the ending. You see me standing on uh, outside of the furnace when they're trying to get in. And uh, I actually spoke to for the the 20-foot guy, the girl with the bag of snakes, and Lao Ga Young. Three of them are going to fight me, one person. That's how it was planned at the, at the ending. No. Um, when they come back to Hong Kong, they come. everybody come back to Hong Kong and they set up uh, a set in Golden Harvest. Uh, Jackie called me up and he said, Mark, we need you for the ending. And I said, I'm sorry, but I can't come back. I said, if you need me for the ending, you have to call Lao Gala and ask him if it's okay for me to come back and film the ending. Uh, and of course, he didn't do that. So I got cut completely from the end. Mm. Then when the credits came up, it was director Lao, Lao Gala, action director Lao Gayong, assistant action director Jackie Stuntin. So, you know, I, I got kicked out of that. But I mean, Jackie was the man. It was his name selling the movie. I mean, uh, you know, he had the power to do that. Yeah. Um, Jackie, as an artist, and what he's achieved in the industry, is legendary. Um, you have to give him respect for that. You know? As a man, as a person, then it's a different ball game. I don't want to talk bad about anybody. Um, you know, he's moved to, to Beijing. Um, a lot of people in Hong Kong dislike him now. No, um, but he does what he has to do to, to carry on his legacy. No, I mean, you've got to respect that. You, he, he's the best, no, and you can't take that away from him. Um, and I just had to accept what happened, no, but my loyalty to my seafood was more important to me than anything else. Um, so you know, that's what happened. <clears throat> So um, do you mind if we just talk about uh, how how the action design process worked on the scene in the trip with the train, the axe gang, uh, the fish market scene? Because these fights are very different looking than the finale, obviously, when yeah. it's going out. I mean, uh, all these fights, I mean, the, the fish market, um, my sister taught me a, a chole foot form that I taught that actor so he could actually looked like toilet foot when he was fighting, you know. Um <clears throat> and then you see Jackie doing the uh Yachi Deng Jongyun, one finger holding up the heavens, you no. Know? Uh so you know <clears throat> he had the, the distinct difference between Chole Foot and Honga. You no. Know? The Axe Gang as well, I mean uh, I was on uh, of course I was part of that. Um, and I ended up shooting my seafood in the end of that scene, you know, in the alleyway. And uh, again, <clears throat> in, in the axe gang scene, you see my seafood, he took a bamboo pole and they broke it. And then they tied uh, Jackie's top around the end and covered it in, in oil. And then Jackie used that. So now when, when, when you hit not only is it a pole, it becomes a spear, it becomes a knife, because now the jagged edges of the bamboo cut. 
See? Whose idea was that? Yeah. So where did my Sifu get this idea from? His father. One time in Hong Kong at Shung Wan Fish Market, his father with three or four friends ended up taking on a group of triads who come into the fish market for protection money. And his father started hitting them with the pole, but they started getting back up. So he smashed the pole against the wall and used it as like a, a pole spear mix. But when it hits, now the jagged edges of the broken bamboo cut. And this is where he got the actual idea of it for the movie. And there's actually um, Hong Kong, uh, if, you, if you can go through uh, the newspapers, if you go, go and, and that, there's actually uh, newspaper articles talking about this fight in the fish market in Shanghai, you know. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, he took that from his father's real life experience of so many people, you can't defeat them all. So you have to change your ideology and your weaponry. And with a pole, you can hit one, two, three, but, you know, if you're the body, it's a good chance of standing up. But now if you're breaking it and it's becoming a knife as well as a pole and it cuts, now when you hit, you cut across the, slice across the neck, it's going to open up the neck. No, it's going to open up the, any part of the body that it hits. So you hit and, and go forward like a spear and then pull it back. No, so he took this idea from his father and put it in the movie. No, uh, and it worked. No, it, 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 it was it was different. It, it, it was you know something that you really couldn't think of. Yeah. Yeah, it almost requires it kind of it requires real world experience to come up with an idea like that, I guess, doesn't it? Somewhere, you know, and actually came from his father, you know. So, you know, that that, that was that was amazing by like that, you know. Um and again, um the first fight scene uh where Jackie uses his drunken boxing and Anita Moy is there pushing him to fight because somebody upset her and that, you know. I mean that choreography was was his choreography as well, you know, and you can see the traditional style of kung fu there. And it wasn't till the ending where Jackie tried to make it more modern, more his style, of, you know, uh, with his comedy and with that falling on the fires and then oh ah, and then this and that, you know. So he, you can see the ending fight scene was completely different from all the other fights in, in the film, you know. So it's, the ending is where we left, and that's where he took over. No, I mean, the last fight we did is with, with Vincent. And that was kind of funny because Vincent was um, his French Samoan background, you know, uh, ethnically. And he was a Taekwondo guy. He was one of the first uh, to represent uh, France in the Olympics for Taekwondo when it first came into the Olympics. He was also supposed to be in, um, the president of France bodyguard, you know. So he had a great physique. He was big. He was strong. But again, remember when I talked about reactions, selling 
people's movement. He lacked that. And because he had a little bit of an ego as well in the fact that because he was a, a, a Olympic taekwondoist, he was a bodyguard of the French president. You know, he thought he knew all about fighting, so he didn't want to listen to a lot of things. And that part in, 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 the, in the furnace, standing in the furnace, he goes to punch Jackie, and Jackie used the fan and hits his hand. So we choreograph it where when he hits his hand, his hand drops. And then Jackie, from there, he, he comes back and hits on his shoulder, on, on, on his right shoulder. Right? So we said, when he, when he comes down, he hits on the top of your shoulder. So when he hits the shoulder, he drops forward. You know? And then once he hits from there, he comes with his elbow across. And then he opens the fan up to come back. You know? So it's like, yeah, okay, well, you're paying attention. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so they set up the shot. So the roll camera action, he punches. Jackie hits his hand, hits his shoulder, but instead of sinking and dropping forwards, he goes backwards. Now, when Jackie's elbow comes, he moves forwards. And I'm about 30 feet away. And I'm looking at the monitor, and you just hear this crack. It is so loud, you know. And everything goes quiet. You turn around, and Vincent's got his back to us, and Jack is facing us. And you can see Jackie look into his face turn around and walk away. And Vincent doesn't move, he just stands there like a statue. And then one by one, the producer comes up, looks in his face and walks away. And then someone else does it, someone else does it. And then my Sifu goes up and looks at him, my Sifu goes back and says, Mark, I think you better go and sort this out. So I walk up to him and I look at him and I go, Vincent, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, why? That's because your nose is now under your eye. You know, the bridge of his nose here was here. It hit him without force. And it kind of like took it in for 20, 30 seconds. Then he put his hand up to feel his nose and felt it wasn't there. And he moved his hand across and felt it. He took one step and passed out with shock. So we woke him up and we arranged him to go to the hospital to have his nose set put back. And one of the producers, who's a girl who's like four and a half foot tall, she's very small. She went to the hospital with him. And when they came back, the hand was in bandage. Because when they went to set his nose, he asked if he could hold a hand. And when they set his nose, he crushed the hand because <laughs> it was that painful. No. Um, and he come back, he was so embarrassed. He's like, I'm a fighter, I'm a bodyguard. I don't know why this happened. And I said, look, Vincent, I goes, no, you got under the lights, the heat from the lights, you know, 
the stress from filming uh, and and that it's just shock. It just hit you all at once, you know, because it happens. And he's like, he was so embarrassed about it, you know. But, you know, things like that happen, you know. You, um, you talked about the uh, the first drunken fight where Jackie fights all of the all of the uh, the guys, and it's the first time he actually gets drunk in the movie. Um, yeah. There's a moment at the end where uh, Dick Lung, T Lung, comes up and grabs Jackie, and Jackie starts fighting him. And there's this moment of danger that kind of sets the tone for the the problem with drunken boxing. Right? Was that Lao Galang's? That was his vision right there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he wanted to show that, that you know, I mean, with people that are not your your class of fighters, you might be lucky and get away with it. But when you come to a an experienced fighter, uh, it's not really going to work. And the same thing after under the train when they're fighting under the train, um, and then they come out into the barn, and then Jackie tries to do his drunken boxing, and it it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so you know, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is, like, you gotta, you gotta know when to use it, when to, when, when to, when to be drunk, when to wake up. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's deception. So just pretending to be drunk is deception, allowing you to get close to somebody, and then once you get to that advantage point, then you take that advantage to to its full, and you wake up. And you use that power and that speed and that, that ferocity to hit them. And then when you come back, you go back to being drunk again. And the thing is, when you're that close to someone from being drunk, and suddenly you explode and you actually hit them, they don't realize that you're not drunk anymore because they're too busy being hit, you know, suffering from them blows. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's something he wanted to show differently. Um, but uh, the end, Jackie didn't want it. He wanted to keep that being drunk throughout, you know. And, and like, like again, I mean, um, in in Jungle Master One, Jungle Master One, he ended up drinking the fluid from the the cigarette canister, you know. And then again in this one, then he ends up drinking some crazy stuff, you know. Um, so you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just different, different ideas. I mean, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I mean, at the end, Jackie still made a great ending. You know, it's just different. Did um did Lagalong try and apply this philosophy in Drunken Master Three? Because he did a movie very soon after that with Simon Yan. Yeah, and Andy Lau. I mean, my series was so mad at this time he wanted to do a drunken master three just to make jackie angry you know um unfortunately jackie was happy because it, it was a flop it didn't really work no um I, I, I mean the thing is one i mean it was too rushed they just wanted to get it out just to make him angry you know it, it wasn't plan properly you know he just shot too rushed um i supposed to have been the main bad guy at the end all right unfortunately i was shooting another movie in hong kong uh as they were coming up to the act to that bar 
Um, Garfay had just met this uh, Italian guy in, in China doing wushu. And uh, his father was a big wine merchant or something. So Garfay thought that if he could get this guy in the movie, then his father might finance uh, Garfay's idea he has about a film. No. So um, Garfay came back to Hong Kong. And I, I already said that, you know, if you're going to film, let me know and I'll stop the filming here for a few days and I'll go there and film and I'll come back, you know. Garfay came on set to see me. I said, oh, you're really busy. And I said, yeah, well, we've got to finish this. But I'm waiting for Sifu to call me. Then he went back to China and told Sifu that I'm busy on this film, that I won't be able to come to make to, to make that film. And he said, oh, but I've got a guy that could, take his part. So he introduced this Italian guy to him, thinking that this guy's father then would finance a film for him. Yeah. Uh, the guy, though he was Wushu stylist, he didn't have the power. You know? yeah. He couldn't carry that part. Um, so at the ending, there was no, there was no power at the end. You yeah. know? It just... That's too bad. And when you when you when you say Gafe, that's that's Gordon Liu, right? And Gordon yeah, Gordon, Gordon Liu Gafe. Because um, you had you you actually worked with him on a few films before this, Cheat on Fire, uh, a couple more, right? Was he? What was his trajectory at the time? Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, he was um, working a lot with TVB, Mark, and uh, there's a company in Malaysia that was doing HBO movies for Malaysian HBO. And they hired him for three three movies, four movies there. And me and him were quite close at that time. So he said to me, he says, Mark, he says, you want to come to Malaysia and choreograph for me? I'll get you to be the action director. So I said, yeah, cool, okay. So um, I went to Malaysia with him and we did three or four movies there together uh, where I was the stunt. Uh, coordinator, action choreographer, you know. Um, so, yeah, we worked quite a while together with each other there, you know. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, he did three movies and then he come back to Hong Kong. I stayed there to do two, one or two more. I ended up getting into a, a confrontation in a nightclub with 30 or 40 people. Uh, I ended up having 400 stitches. Oh. Um, 30 of them attacked me with uh, Parang, Malaysian jungle knives. So I got a, a big cut on my head here. This arm was nearly cut off. It's cut from here, right underneath here. A piece of flesh is missing. It's got a hole in my shoulder here. This arm was cut across here. I got cut on the leg twice right through to the, the bone. And I, of course, got cut on the back a few times. Um, I survived it. <coughs> um, lucky to get to hospital. Um, when, I, when I woke up in the hospital, the doctor was there and the uh, ambulance driver was there. And the doctor just shook his head and said, I don't know why, how you're still here. You shouldn't be here. 
and he walked away. And then the ambulance driver said, I'm sorry, but I had to come and see if you are alive. Because we didn't know how to pick you up. So usually we go under your arms to pick you up, but your arm was hanging off. You know? And he said, because it happened at 2 or 3 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, he says the roads were empty. If it happened in the daytime or early evening, there'd have been traffic jams. They would have never gotten to hospital or died from loss of blood. You know? So, I mean, after that, then uh, I, I kind of, uh, I stayed in the hospital for three days and then I uh, signed a release form against the doctor's orders to leave the hospital because the hospital wasn't that clean. And I decided to come back to Hong Kong to recover. You know? But before I came back, I mean, um, they, a friend picked me up from the hospital and they had to really carry me out of the hospital. They just barely walk. Um, so they got me in the car and they said, well, we'll take you back to the hotel. I said, no. I said, take me back to the nightclub that this happened. And they were like, what? I was take me back to the nightclub. So we pulled up at the nightclub and it was about 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. So it was just starting to open. And uh, I said, stop the car at the end of the car park in front of the, the nightclub doors. So they stopped the car directly in front of the nightclub doors. And I said, well, get me out of the car. So they had to come and help me out of the car. I couldn't get out of the car myself. Then they sat me on the front of the car. And I said, I'll get back in the car. So they got back in the car. And I sat on the front of the car by myself. The doors opened. Uh, people looked. They shut the doors. A few minutes later, the doors opened with about 20, 30 people standing there looking at me. I lifted up my arm and waved. And then I said, get me back in the car. And they, they come out, got me back in the car, and we drove off. And they said, you're crazy. What do you do that for? I said, well, the thing is, if I didn't do that, I'd be running the rest of my life. I had to show them that I'm still alive and I'm not scared. No. Uh, and then after that, then um, I had to go back to the police station once. And then they brought up the incident that happened in Malaysia when I was younger and tried to connect the two. And again, I, I brought up the, uh, you know, I'm here filming, I'm a guest, you're coming, I'm a, a, company, a country, I was attacked. I said that I, I want the British Embassy. And then uh, when they let me go, I bought a ticket and got on the next flight back to Hong Kong. You know? So, but I, I go back to Malaysia on a regular basis and uh, I went back one time and I know quite a few CID guys where I was brought up. And they said to me, they said, uh, they've got a file on me like this. And I said, don't don't fight anymore in Malaysia because they'll just shoot you next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the third knife fight might not end as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, that's life. You know? I mean, uh, you know, in the film industry, people are louder than life and, things happen, you know, yeah. and you just have to accept it, you know, but I, 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 I kind of like, uh, I, I, it's like my Sifu when he put his, his father's fight scene in, in Junker Master, you know, um, if ever I got the chance, I'd like to reconstruct the fight in a movie. I mean, I, I reconstructed the fight on a low budget, on a documentary but not to the intenseness uh, that I would really like to, to film it, you know. 
So, I mean, if I ever got a chance to put it in a, in a real movie, not a documentary, but a movie with a good budget, you know, uh, I would like to do that, you know. Did, um, did La Galong ever talk about um, Operation Scorpio working with uh, Kim Won Jin in Chingalok? Uh, I mean, he, he didn't, he, did, he had nothing that he really could say about Chingalok because the Chingalok, he would say, you know, whatever I wanted, he could do. I just need to ask him one time uh, and he could do, you know. Now, the Korean guy on the other hand, you know, he was watching a lot of Hong Kong movies and didn't realize a lot of the somersaults and that they're doing were on wires. He learned to do these things for real, you know. Um, so, I mean, he was amazing himself as well. I mean, he's only a little guy. And, you know, it's the little guys that do all these, these great performances, the big guys, that they're too heavy to, to move like they do, you know. Uh, and he did quite well for himself. I mean, after that, he did quite a few Hong Kong movies. He did some uh, movies in Taiwan and that, you know. Um, and uh, he's a really, really nice guy, you know. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a performer. I wouldn't say he's a, a fighter, he's a performer. He's an artist. You know, he's a real artist. And, and he has the guts to do these crazy things that other people won't do in, in on screen, you know. How did uh how did Lao Galang use his skills? Because uh he's he does Kim Won Jin does some stuff that nobody had ever done before, like the the back handspring to the scorpion stance. Was that what was the what was the collaboration like? Well again, I mean I mean like I say my Sibu, we're gonna find out your strong points what you're really good at. And then he wants to make a style that's different, that no one's done before, you know? And that's why, I mean, his flexibility, his ability to, 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 to somersault and, and, and gym, do gymnastics, his kicking ability and everything, it was extraordinary. So with that, with his supple body and then going into that scorpion position with his leg up and that, and being a kicker made perfect sense. And it's funny now because I, I go on to YouTube and I see Shaolin Temple, some of the monks doing scorpion style, you know, and they're doing exactly the same thing that was done in that movie. But before that movie, you never saw it, you know. So, I mean, the influence they both had on, on, on it, you know, I mean, without his ability, my Siva would have never come up with that scorpion style. What's interesting is that uh, he has a very, uh, he has a very, what I thought was a very fresh take on the Mo Ying the no shadow kick. And he explains it visually in a way that like has never been done before. Because the way that we thought that Mo Ying worked was, you know, Jet Li jumps up in the air and does this. We thought that was Mo Ying But then when it's, it, when it, he's watching Kim Won Jin kick and he's moving his shoulders, he's giving away his kick. And so the Mo Ying for, for Lao Gaolong was not showing that you're doing the kick. Well, but I mean, no, I mean, the, the, the real Mo Ying that he teaches that we use is a low kick, right, to the groin, you know, and it's from the crane fist. So, and the crane, when you, when you, the wings open and then they kick and then they go into the crane beat. So after they kick, they block the, the somebody catches the leg and you knock off the hand and then you go into the crane beat. You know, so he's saying that 
It's not that the kick is is so fast it has no shadow. But when the hands come up and they cover your vision of your eyes, and then if you try to block it, your hand is also covering your vision of your eyes. So once the hands open, the foot is already there. The point is your vision was obstructed, so you don't see the kick. Not that the kick is so fast it has no shadow. Yeah. No. So because they couldn't see the kick, because the eyes were obstructed, it's oh, it's so fast it has no shadow. So you become the shadowless kick. Mm. No. But as you know, Honga is 70% hands, 30% legs, and all the kicks are from the chest down. There's no high kicks. There's no, I mean, you have the jumping crescent kick, you know, uh, or we call a, a jump from a tornado kick, you know. Um, but there's no really flying side kick in, in Hong Kong, you know. So, but for the, for the film industry, for, for the Wong Fei Young movies, move Jet Li and everything, then they, they decide, because Jet Li is a northern stylist. He's not a southern stylist. So for him doing the jumping psychic was more visual. So having the Mo Ying as a, a flying side, triple psychic uh, for the movie looked much better. Yeah. Um, but then when it comes back to the um, Scorpion, okay? Now, again, it's about uh, body structure, no? So that's why a lot of the time when, when uh, Southern stylists do low kicks, they put teacups on their shoulders and kick without dropping the cup so the shoulders don't move. So as a, as a low, low kick, you don't know where it's going or where, where it's coming from. Because when they're so close to you in front of their, in your face and their shoulders are straight, you don't, see, as, as again, as the hands are covering, obstructing your eyes, you don't see the shoulders move, you don't see the kick. Yeah. And in, in, um, Dirty Ho, you see that with uh, Wang Yu pressing, kicking them uh, uh, for legs, so that, that post they made, right? Then um, also um, with Wei Ying Hong, he teaching her with the skirt and how the kicks are under the skirt. Not, not Wei Ying Hong. Uh, uh, I need a wing, right? In, uh... the, the, the Japanese one. Oh. Where, um... where the, the, the Japanese come over to challenge him. The he's, showing his, he's showing his Japanese wife how Chinese women kick with the skirt in the way, the low kicks, you know? <clears throat> so, I mean, really, all the southern styles were kicking like that, shoulders not moving, you know? But it's only the northern styles are kicking high. To get that high kick, they're dropping their shoulders. So he's talking about body structure. So you, you learn to understand a person's body structure and how he reacts, then you can read to what he's doing, you know? And that's why, you know, he was showing that when you're going to kick, most people kick, they drop the shoulder before they, they go high. You know? So that brings up a, an interesting, it's a question that somebody else asked uh, when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you is how, di how did uh, Lao Gaolong teach martial arts and screen fighting? Because when you're doing screen fighting, sometimes telegraphing is necessary. Uh, other times, Maybe you want to show the correct technique and not do telegraphing. How did he balance that? What was his view on? What were his views on that? I did. I did a little uh, 
documentary for him. Um, Ashley was for uh, Toby Russell. Okay. Um, he wanted to, he paid 70,000 Hong Kong dollars to my seafood to do a, a one day interview. You know? And we did it in China. And then there's me and my student, we're doing a little fight scene. And then he comes in and, and goes, What are you doing? Are you real fighting or movie fighting? And we're saying, Oh, movie fighting. He goes, No, not like this, like this. You know? So he's saying, You know, um, for real fighting, uh, you want to keep everything tight. No, so traditionally Honga, when they're doing this, it's this. And the hand movements were short, the tire claw was short, it was this. No, because it's for real fighting. But on screen, this and this doesn't look good. So you have to exaggerate. For then now on screen, it comes this longer movement out. So you see it. And then when you're doing tire claw, it's extending, so you see it. No, so for movie fighting, you have to exaggerate the movement. No, um, for the camera, otherwise it's going to be so short and so fast. The audience are not going to see it. They're not going to appreciate it. So for film, when 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 you're 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 choreographing, you want to think, you want to make the action believable. There has to be some reality in it. But at the same time, you have to over-exaggerate mm -hmm. so the audience gets to see it. Yeah. Uh, and it's just finding that balance between having a certain uh, point of reality plus that exaggeration to make it look pleasing to the eye, to make it look entertaining. So when he works with people like Jet Li, who is a purely northern Beijing Wushu stylist, um with some northern styles mixed in i assume how does he how does he tap into the real martial arts of northern systems did he have views on northern systems in general when it came to cinema um well of course he always like southern southern styles they like to have the northern styles as their uh, uh, opposite you know yeah, martial, I mean, martial club is a good example right yeah, martial club. and you saw uh long long way in the alleyway you know would be the guy kicking and everything, you know? uh, and that 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 one was amazing where you see him do the split standing up on the wall and everything, you know. So I mean, to have someone a, a kicker against a, a hand stylist, you can see the, the difference in the both uh, styles, and the difference is so big visually that it's so entertaining. And again, that's what you've got with Scorpion, Operation Scorpion, you know. And the difference between hand techniques and then the, the, the leg techniques, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, he always had that. And then, then with the um, North-South North Shaolin, there was a problem with Jet Li because he couldn't fight how my Sifu wanted him to fight. Uh, my Sifu tried to teach him some, his Southern style, his style of fighting, but he just couldn't accept it. No, he wanted to stay with his northern, what he was used to with Shaolin Temple and this and that. So there was a, a little bit of a fallout. Oh, not so Shaolin. Um, and, and my Sifu took uh, Su Hao and Ma Lao. 
monkey. So you got little monkey and monkey. You know, they took both of them to, to China with them to film that. You know, um, so you see uh, monkeys in a lot of scenes with uh, uh, Jet Li. You know, um, but yeah, he. he he also said that Jelly had so much problems trying to adapt to my Sifu's fighting style that there was some argue, arguing going on and that. And then later on, my Sifu brought Jelly to Hong Kong to do some demonstrations on TVB. But after that, they they split. And then Jelly went to work with Yang Ping. You know, so you know, I mean, uh, so it goes. You know? I mean. Uh, do you think that Yimo Ping and Jet Li got along better because Yimo Ping's father was a Beijing opera performer? Was there a closer connection there? Um, that's hard to say. I can't really say, you know, um, because I, I never saw them both together, you know. Um, so I, I don't really want to make up a comment, which could be totally wrong. Okay. No. Uh, <laughs> But Yun Ping has his own style. I mean, you can see a lot of my Sifu's old films from Shores, that Yun Ping was a stuntman in those fights. You, know, you can see faces here and there. And, that. and um, a lot of times when he wasn't working, he'd go on set of a film of my Sifu's and just watch how he choreographed that and learned, learned what he could from that. And then he took what he, he did good himself and he made his own style. You know, and uh, he became very successful at it, you know, mm. um, with the Matrix and everything else. And it's funny because now in America, a lot of people think, oh, if you do Wire, it's a Hong Kong movie. And the Hong Kong style movie, actually, really, it's Wire. Use it Wire, you know. But Wire is not, it's part of what we do, but it's not, it doesn't make a Hong Kong movie, you know. Uh, and that's funny, and it's funny because um, people say that that, that uh, Yong Wo Ping is the first guy to go and uh, work on an American movie, no. Uh, but if you look at it, my Sifu did the uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires with Hammer Films. That was the first one, and then he also did the uh, Turtles. Ninja Turtles, yep. No, and it's funny because he talked about that. And he, he says, When I got over there to start with, they're all looking at me, going, Who's this funny little Chinese man right here? You know, and they wasn't really too happy with him being there. And his English isn't that good, so he said he just saw a load of weapons on the side. So he went and picked up the weapons and just started playing them. And by the time he'd finished, everybody was smiling and coming patting him on the back. <laughs> yeah, oh, dude. <clears throat> Um, we've gone over time, but I, uh, I really appreciate all of your insight. Um, I wanted to ask you just real quick too, you know, what are your views on, um, well, the, 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 the handover was coming very soon around this time doing, uh, Drunken Master 2. Um, and as you mentioned, there's been a big change with triad activity and the film industry, um, you know, what are your thoughts on these modern martial art heroes and how they're being, uh, well, martial art heroes and how they're depicted in these newer Chinese films? I mean, 
I think the Hong Kong industry is really gone. No, I'm hoping that's not true. I really want it to come back. Um, but there's not many people left that could duplicate what was done in the 90s. No, uh, um, so it, even though in my heart I'd like to, it to come back, I, I, I don't know, I don't think it will. No, um. Of course, I, like I say, I've got my own company. I did uh, that documentary myself, and I I won thirty three awards for it. You no, know? and I'm using it to open doors to get investment, and I hope that I can do some movies that I can incorporate the '90s style action. You know, in there. Um, China has some great sets. They have a lot of money. You know, their budgets are amazing. You know. Um, but still, I mean, when I look at Chinese movies from mainland China, they have the ability, but I don't feel the power in. You know, they have that beautiful wushu movements and the somersaults and the tricking and all this now, you know. But when they fight, I don't feel the power that was in the films in the 90s there, you know. And really, I think that the West are going to be making much better movies, action, martial art movies, you know. <clears throat> they are better. I, I think, I actually think now that the stuntmen coming out of the States and out of the West are better than the new stuntmen coming out of Hong Kong now, you know. Uh, the old stuntmen, you're never going to get the new stuntmen to do the things that the old guys, the old, the old team uh, used to do, right. Um, so, that's that's gone. That's that's history now. You no, know? um, now with tricking, with uh, free running, and the way that Western martial artists are adapting it in their the martial arts, it's gone beyond. You know, you got people doing things that now no one in Hong Kong can do. And now the Hong Kong stuntmen are starting to learn to trick. They're starting to learn free running, but they're learning it from the guys in the West. You know, uh, so I think that. If you have the right people work together with the right mindset, the this the standard of action is going to be so much higher in the West now. You know, I mean, I think if you're doing uh, non-union movies, you have more freedom to do that. But if you're doing big budget union movies, then you're going to be restricted to certain things you can get away with or not. You know. Um, but I, I I think the market for martial art movies is low to mid budget. No, you don't need twenty, thirty, forty million dollars. You don't need big. You don't need movie stars that you're paying what the budget is for the movie just for them to be in it. You know, you need people who can perform and give you what you want with good stories, good scripts. No, uh, and I, I I think I think now. The only way you're going to do that now is to, to use the people from the West, you know. I mean, people like you, people like the guys from the Marshall Club, you know. I mean, you know, so many people are good at tricking and, and, and free running and this and that. I mean, there are stunts you could come up with. But uh, insurance companies are going to blacklist you. <laughs> you know, and you might get sued if someone gets killed, but, you know... Yeah. But I mean, 
it's how far you want it's how much you want it and how far you're willing to go but i i, I don't think that the, the people in hong kong now could could match yeah. what the west has to offer but it's just having the right mindset and knowing how to put it together so lao galang had a view on violence uh when it came to martial arts and he comes across as very I guess you could almost say, yeah, he's anti-violent in a certain sense. He's very about, it's much about de-escalation and you don't kill your enemy at the end. Well, yeah, the thing is to him, uh, uh, Chinese culture, Chinese martial arts, a treasure of, of, of the Chinese people, you know? And he doesn't want Chinese people just to be seen as mindless killers, but people of violence. He wanted to, the world to see that they had morals, you know, and that's what he wanted to show in his movies. Yes, Kung Fu can fight, but it's not about fighting. It's about the journey you make, learning. Just killing people, killing people, where does it get you? Because you kill someone and someone else, revenge comes and kills you, and then someone else from your family kills them, and it goes on and goes on, and it never stops. Uh, violence for nothing, you know? And to him, like, using the martial arts, using martial virtue, and, and having an enemy... And overcoming that enemy and making him become your friend was something greater than that and that, that uh, violence killing someone, you know. And all his all his films, he didn't really like people dying, you no. Know? He, he preferred to have the underdog, and then you see him come off from training, and then he uses martial arts, and then having the ability to defeat to defeat someone didn't necessarily mean he wanted to kill him. He wanted to show him his ways and become friends because if you make an enemy, that, that guy's an enemy for life. And all these stories about you are going to be bad. And he's going to try and make so many people think that you are the bad guy and not to be friends and not, not have any connection with you. Uh, and if, But if you can turn that guy into someone that respects you and become a friend, and then you know, you can develop, you can show the martial arts, you can show the strength of, of humanity and people, you know. And that's what he did. He, he tried to show the strength of humanity and not just violence. You know? where, does, where did that come from with him? And how did he develop that mindset? Was there something about his childhood? Did he ever talk about that? Um, well, I mean, it was about martial virtue. Because Chinese martial arts... The, the, the martial virtue is a big part of it because without that, you're gangsters. Without that, you're hooligans. You know, you're thugs. You're just violent, and that's what key, that's what makes you a martial arts scholar, uh, a gentleman, you know, a hero. You know, and because of Chinese Southern Chinese martial arts, we really were heavy onto martial virtue. And how they treated their older generation, their their parents, their sifu, their older kung fu brothers, uh, and all this, you know. And it's a part of learning martial arts. Learning martial arts is not just about going to the gym, learning how to fight, and then going away and fighting. It's about becoming a part of a family, part of a community, you know, and then giving back to the community and helping those around you, you know. Using your strengths to help people, not using your strengths to, to hurt people, you know. And to him, that was more important in martial arts than, than beating someone down, you know. 
But of course, we always like to see a winner. Someone has to win, someone has to lose. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does something they shouldn't do. And they regret what they did. And if you give that person a second chance, that person could change and become better. But if you just don't give that person a second chance, the only thing he's got left to do is become more violent, you know, more antisocial. You know? So, you know, that, 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 that's the way he thought when he, he looked at these movies and the way he choreographed these fights. It was about art. It wasn't about violence. Great advice for people who um, take after, you know, action stars who are uh, very violent and vengeance based. Um, because uh, when you have and you you have real life experience of what happens when um, when faced <clears throat> with extreme violence, uh, what real violence is, um, and that it's not a uh, it's not as glamorous. Death is not as glamorous as it's... Violence isn't glamorous. You know, death is horrible. I've seen a, quite a few people die, you know. And it's not a pleasant sight. And it's something that never leaves you, you know. It's with you for the rest of your life, you know. And you learn to live on with it. And, and you learn to, to hide it, you know. But there's times that, 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 that go on in your life where it, it comes back and it hits you. And the thing is... As an actor, as an artist, you know, um, you never want to believe in what you do on the screen you can do for real because you cannot, you know. Um, you have to be humble. You have to always be willing to learn, always willing to take advice, you know. Um, without your fans, you're nobody. Without the people who are willing to pay to watch you, nobody's going to watch you. No. So you don't need an ego. You need to respect the people that respect what you have, the ability you have. No. And just stay humble and, and realize that you're only an actor. You're acting it. No. And the stuntmen are allowing you to do that action. The directors, the script writers are putting you in a position to be that character. But in reality, violence is nothing like on screen. And it's over within seconds. You're, you're, you're dying. You're taking your last breath before you even know what happened. No. Um, so, you know, I mean, action cinema is a way for us to live our dreams of mancho man, uh, uh, some type of violence without having to experience it firsthand. And we go into that fantasy world, we watch a film, it excites us. Mm. And then once it's finished, we got to learn to turn off and come back into reality. You know? um, and as actors, we need to do that as well. We play a part in a movie, it's a character. And once that movie's finished, we go back to being who we are. We're not that character. We're not that person. No. Um, in our minds, everybody wants to be that person. Everyone wants to be that, that hero, that person that can beat up everybody, and kill everybody. But there's, there's, not, there's not that person alive today. I was going to uh, bring up my final question. That's a great segue. Um, did you, uh, becoming a father, because you're a father, 
your daughter's an actress, martial artist. Um, did that change your views on death, on violence? Not, not really. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I was a great father. Um, I wouldn't say I was a family man. No. Um, I had dreams. And you could say I was selfish because I put myself before anything else. I decided that I only have one life and uh, I have to live it how I want it to be and I have to go for the dreams I want, even if that means hurting the people close to me. Because I, I, I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, if I don't follow my dreams and I live a life of a lie to make someone else happy, I'm making myself sad. I'm making my life miserable. And then eventually further down the line, because of that, hatred will come into that and the relationship will end anyway. No. And then by the time all that time has passed, I will never be able to go back and take them chances or take them opportunities that were given to me. They'd be gone. So I, I just became selfish and I thought, it's about me. I had my dreams and I wanted to try it. And the thing is, I haven't I haven't finished trying. And I won't finish until the day I die. And maybe I fail. Maybe at the end of the, of the day, my last breath, I never accomplished what I want to do. And I fail. But at least I tried. No. And I gave up being a father. I gave up being a family man in my younger years to follow these dreams, to be the bad boy, to hang out with the bad crowd and do the crazy stuff, the bad stuff, you know. Uh, and uh, I missed a lot of my, my, my children's growing up, you know. I wish I, I regret in a sense because I would have liked to see more of their childhood, you know. Um, I'm lucky that my daughter has my DNA and following my footsteps. She came back to learn martial arts from me. Uh, we've got a very strong bond together. Um, and we really have a, a loving relationship with each other, you know. And uh, I give her as much advice as I can. I never, I never uh, pushed her in. When she was young, I tried to push her to be a, a martial artist. And then... I, she stopped when she was six because she beat up some boy at school, knocked his teeth out, so we stopped teaching her. Then she went into ballet, then she went into other things. And then she didn't come back till she was 14, and then she, she made the decision to learn martial arts herself. Then she stopped again at 18 to go to university. And then after university, she came back and, and trained again. And then she, she asked me one question. She said, Daddy, she says, Nobody respects Chinese martial arts. Everybody says he can't fight. And she says, I want to be an actress. If I become famous or, be, or become some sort, have some sort of a success, the people are going to tell go, yeah, but this girl can't fight. She only looks good on film. She decided she wanted to go into MMA. And she knows that she won't be able to use a Kung Fu techniques in it. She has to learn how they fight and fight like that. But she says she's going, she's going to try to add in some Chinese martial arts, some onga. And she went and fought. I was also uh, reluctant 
in a way that I didn't want to find out that my daughter couldn't fight. She was scared. Her first fight she ever had, um, she just was pure aggression. And uh, there's a picture of her punching this girl in the face. And this she punched on this side, and this side of the face is concaved from the power of that side being here. She won that fight with pure aggression. Then the next fight she had, the girl that she fought was the kind of poster person for the gym that put on the fights. And we'd already been told that unless this girl gets knocked out, the judges are going to give her the, the, the win, you know, because this, this school is paying the money for the fights, you know. And my daughter knocked this girl down, battered this girl. But this girl gave back what my daughter gave. My daughter had bloodshot eyes, swollen eyes, you know, swollen face. When I saw her face really battered, everybody was around her. They're all, you know, feeling sorry for her. And she was just sitting there. And um, I could see that anger and hatred in her eyes that they'd give the fight to the other girl. And I just started smiling and laughing. And people come to me and are you okay? I goes, yeah. He goes, how can you smile? How can you laugh? Your daughter's hurt so badly. I goes, I'm so happy that she's hurt badly. And they said, what do you mean? I goes, she's just shown to me now she's a fighter. No, she's not crying. She's not hiding. She's not running. She's sitting there. She's dealing with what happened. And she's, she said she'll fight again. And then she came back and then she fought another few fights, one in Japan. And then she fought three fights in Hong Kong. So she showed me that she can fight. She's a fighter. And then she got um, an offer from uh, one MMA company. They were interested in signing her. But then she turned around to me. She says, if I go into fighting professionally, i got to spend all my time training. And then if I fight, i got, what, two, three years? And then through injuries or, or getting an age, I'm going to have to stop. She says, I want to go into movies, and I want to spend all my time in movies now. I've done what I set out to do, so now I'm going to concentrate on movies. So now in the future, if anybody says, yeah, but the other girl can only fight on film, she goes, hmm. take a look at this. I fought for real, and I won. No, so she can fight. She's not saying she's the best fighter in the world, but she's saying is she can fight. She's not frightened to fight. But for her now, she wants to be an artist. And she's done uh, pretty well. She signed for Shaw Brothers for five years. So she's making her own, own way. And I'm really proud of her, really happy that she's doing that. You know, I've been out of the industry for a long, long time, um, over 15 years you No. Know? And before my Sifu died, he made me promise to come back to the film industry. And I have these, and he gave me his last script, which wanted to be like 10, 20 million US. Um, but who would trust me with that budget? No one's going to trust me with that budget because I've been out of the industry for so long. So I decided to make a documentary. It doesn't take that much money, but it's going to show people what I can do. So I made a documentary about myself for around 60,000 US. And uh, it, it won 33 awards around the world. I got a 10-year contract for sales with the distributors for it. It, it trickles in money every, every couple of months. 
for the next 10 years. So, I mean, it's not going to make me a lot of money, but it's going to pay my bills. And it's also opened the doors to show people what I can do on such a low budget. And then if I, I've got like four scripts, which is, I, and each strip is going up a couple of million. And then on, after the fourth one, then I hopefully if everything's okay, and I can get the investors to do my sequel's last script he ever made. I look forward to uh, following your career as it goes on. You're clearly, you're clearly not done with uh, with the film business. So um... I've been at it for a long time. Yeah. I've made my promises. I've still got my goals, and I'm just biding my time. And I've took so much away from the Hong Kong film industry that I'm hoping that I get a chance to put something back for future generations and to share what I have. I mean, I'm not the best. I'm never going to be the best, but I have something that is different. And I have something that hopefully that I can share with the people that they can take away and make their futures, make their careers better. Well, Mark, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, your experience is, uh, um, there's a treasure trove, a trove of information from what you were talking about. And uh, you've had an amazing career. Um, and happy to see it's continuing on. Okay, thank you very much, Eric. It's nice to see you again. And thank you for asking if you could interview me. I'm very humbled. And I'm very happy that I can share with people who have a like-minded vision uh, in the film industry and uh, in the martial art world as well. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay, thank you very much.